Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. Okay, I am recording here, Stump, episode 70. How you been? Good. Just got out for a quick hike with... Mrs. Stomp, so that's always a good thing. Did you go because you wanted to, or did you go because you need to have a recent hike to talk about? Uh, because we we really needed to, just as a couple, you know, just to get out. So it was nice. So Stomp, I, this isn't on the show notes or anything, but I was just reading this article. Like, what is the deal with this guy that um, got acquitted in the the vehicle accident that happened up by Appalachia parking lot where um, he? There were seven motorcyclists that were killed in this head-on collision. Like, how did this guy get off? Wasn't he? Wasn't there drugs in his system? Apparently, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I do not know the latest on this, so you'll have to fill me in. But I did see last week that they were finishing up the trial, so you'll have to fill me in. Yeah. So the, what I know is this guy. His name is Voldemir Zukovsky, twenty-six years old. Yeah. And he was acquitted on um, seven counts of manslaughter, negligent homicide, and one count of reckless conduct in connection with the crash that happened in June 2019. So, I mean, I, I saw this come over and I was shocked because everything I'd ever read about this story had said that this guy was responsible that he had drugs in his system that he had crossed the median and that sure. um you know he's just generally an awful person so I, I don't know what the hell happened yeah um i mean i guess it was up to the the jury yeah i mean what i'm what i'm reading is they're saying that one of the lead motorcycle guys was was drunk and not looking where he was going and lost control of his motorcycle so it sounds to me like the defense attorney was able to insert at least enough reasonable doubt doubt in the mind of yeah in the mind of the jurors that they they had to uh, they had to find him not guilty. So yeah, that's um, the way our system works. I mean that that hats off to that attorney. That's the whole idea about defending a client. You just go to bat for him, and if you can instill enough reasonable doubt. There you go. The jury has to find you not guilty. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's just like these seven families. Like I just think about them. Like I feel like it's yeah, a bit of a I shock. I just feel like this dude. You know, and again, I'm. I get the law piece of it, yeah. but like I just feel like this dude should spend some time in jail. But yeah, very interesting story. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I really this came out of left field. I had no idea. Um, that that even happened. Um, I tend to not watch the mainstream media, just in general. I just don't watch the news. It's just such a downer. But uh, thanks for the update, Mike. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry to kick us off with a depressing thing. But, no, it's you know, a big it's story. Too, like there's, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> I, there's this trend on TikTok right now where these like emergency room doctors come on and they're like, as an emergency room doctor, these are the five things that I would never do. Okay. And so the premise is basically like that they've seen people come into the emergency room in, um, you know, all these different situations. And like, I've seen like 10 of these videos and every single one of them says, um, drive a motorcycle. 
they all say that they would not. The most common ones are, I would not drive a motorcycle or drive on a motorcycle. And then the other ones are, I would never jump into a body of water head first. And the, they always say trampolines as well. I would never go on a trampoline. <laughs> really? No tramp, huh? Yeah. I would do a yeah. tramp. And then also firearms. They would say, they say, I would never own a firearm. Because they see people coming in shot and stuff. Huh. Interesting. Well, that can happen. But uh, if you're trained, firearms are not an issue. Yeah, yeah. But they do say the motorcycles, that that's the one that's always consistent. That I guess they see a lot of crashes. You see how people drive when you're in your own car. Um, if you're on a bike, there are so many blind spots and you have to really be on your game to avoid drivers. I think the drivers are the worst problem. Yeah. And I used to be like a big cyclist, like the pedal kind. Yeah. Uh, but even that, I've had just too many skiers. I got I got sort of pushed off the road by a truck in Maine riding my bike. And ever since then, I've been kind of wigged out about being on the road. So I, I don't think a motorcycle is ever in my future. Yeah. Yeah, I can't afford one anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I would. <laughs> yeah. All right, Stomp. So um, I'm looking at the notes here. 100,000 download celebration. So what it, what is this all about? Dude, it's a done deal. Yeah. Um, it's been on Instagram. I'm not sure if you've posted on Facebook about it, but we will be celebrating 100,000 downloads for the podcast at Reckless. On Sunday afternoon, September 11th at 5 p.m. You can certainly show up early. We will be in the Pint House, which is a property just behind Reckless. And it's just a massive building with a bar and plenty of seating and this and that. And uh, you can just be ready for a great night of... It's a live show. It's basically what we're doing right now, just in person. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Based upon the um, the interest on Instagram, I think it's going to be packed. So very cool. Are you going? <laughs> I hope you're yeah, going. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, I'm kind of nervous about being in front of a lot live crowd, but I think we'll be fine. I think it would be a good idea too. Like that, that's the same day that Flags on the 48 is going on. It is. So, so everybody's going to be in the region. Yeah, so a lot of people will be around. So I think if you're doing flags on the 48 and, you know, by f- four or five o'clock, I would assume that most people will be wrapped up by then, like swing by Reckless and see us. And, um, you know, I'm a little bit nervous about a live audience, but also like I was the um, MC of my high school talent show back in like 1990. <laughs> so I've got a little bit of experience. I don't want to brag, but I got a little experience managing a live crowd. So it should be good. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, uh, it's going to be so much fun. I just want to, uh, you know, hang out with everybody and have some reckless and, you know, it's just going to be great. It is sort of a cool thing. I, I, um, I've i talked to a few people recently about the podcast and just how weird it is, how it's it's just becoming its own beast. It's like, who would have known this thing would have stuck and uh, taken off like it has, but it's it's super cool. So it's it's a nice little celebration for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for my, I'm just going to ride it for as long as we can. Eventually, like I'll screw it up somehow. I'm sure, but for now, it seems like it's going well. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So yeah. So more details to come on that. We'll be posting stuff on our social media, and definitely looking forward to it. And I'm going to have to write like a little stand-up routine or something stomp i don't know we'll, we'll have to figure it out oh yeah it's gonna be great it's gonna be awesome no stress 
no stress, no stress at all. So um, next up, we've got the reminder that um, Larson and his crew are going to be out there on the Skyline Loop looking to establish the fastest known time. What, what What's the date on that and what's the deal there, Stump? That is August 27th, and that's a Saturday morning. If people actually want to see him leave and start, it's going to be really early. It's at the Tecumseh Trailhead, which is in the actual ski resort parking lot, not the Tripoli Road side. So 6 a.m. start, and we're going to meet him halfway at the Livermore Road Junction. And, uh, you know, resupplying this and that. But um, again, I want to thank EMS for providing the gear for the runners. Um, he is running with a friend, Travis. So the two of them will be establishing the first fastest known time for this route. So it's super cool. Larson has been out there doing some recon and some of the... Um, I don't want to say more complicated areas, but when you get closer to town, it gets a little more interwoven and a a little more complicated. So he's ready to go. And um, also, I want to say thank you to uh, Waterville for supporting this as well. So the whole crew is on board. Let's see if they can pull it off and do it safely. And yeah. And after the fact, we'll definitely have them on board to talk about it because we have some catching up to do for Lodge to Dodge, Dodge to Lodge and this new adventure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have faith in the crew. I think they're going to crush it. I, I feel like maybe we should like have it like a dedicated segment at the, sh- the beginning of every show just talking about like sort of the entertainment business and what we're, do- what we're keeping track of here. But right now I've been binging, um, you know that show Alone? Have you ever seen that show Alone? It's on the History Channel. It's basically they take 10 survivor lists and they drop them off in like this you know, remote area right now. They're in um, British Columbia and they're calling it like Grizzly Mountain. So they're in the middle okay. of Grizzly Bear territory. There's more more bears than people where they are. They're on a lake. And uh, it's just kind of interesting to see how, um, how these survivalist people sort of manage with very limited resources. I think they can take like five or six things. Like they can take a saw and they can take... They can take like fire and um, paracord and stuff like that to use. So they've got a lot. Most of them will start with, you know, building a shelter. And some of them build like these amazing shelters. They're all like in grizzly bear territory. You kind of need a shelter that is made of wood so that you can you can hide in there in case a bear comes around. Sure. Um, And then one guy is really good. Like he was able to like shoot a deer and he's got like tons of food and he made like a smokehouse to smoke all the meat. Hmm. Um, And he's like he made like a hammock out of like deer carcass or whatever. And he's like having a great time. Everybody else is basically starving to death, (laughs) which it's kind of kind of interesting to watch do they have to have like a basis of knowledge or do they just come in blind they are um they're they're survivalists by trade oh so, okay all um, right most of them are like you know they're, they're homesteaders or they're people that like work Preppers. as survivalists and in, in uh uh what are those people called that like um make stuff in the wilderness i forget what that's called bushcrafters oh yeah, sure that, bushcraft that type, those type of people so it's pretty interesting to watch and I um I you know I'll binge it so I'll watch like ten or twelve episodes. And the idea is is that you, it's the last person standing that wins like five hundred thousand dollars, and they have no idea who, you know, how the other people are doing. So I think they're like they're like fifty days in at this point, but I think six of them have already tapped out. So they have like SOS buttons they can hit. So, so what season are they in currently? 
I think this is like season ten or eleven or something. So there's been a ton of no, ton like of like a yearly season, like spring, winter. Oh uh, yeah, it's like um, it's like fall, but more on the winter side. So I okay. think that they're like in October, September, October in British Columbia. So it's That's like starting tough. to snow. Oh yeah, and um, yeah. And wow. they're on this lake and like the lake like gets like 20, 30 mile an hour winds. And it's actually, it's sort of like being on the ocean. Like they can't keep their fishing rods out into the water. So it's hard to fish. Huh. Um, but that's the goal is to try to catch brook trout or, or whatever the trout is that they have in, in that lake. Yeah. It sounds more interesting than uh, the first series that came out like Naked and Afraid. That was so ridiculous. Naked and Afraid. <laughs> Do you yeah, that? yeah. I, and those are also staged. And we talked about Bear Grylls and how like they, he pretended to be in the middle of the New Hampshire wilderness and he was in Glen Ellis Falls like tying up a rope or whatever. But like I think these people are legit. Well, that's cool. That'd be worth yeah. watching. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Um, and then on the notes here, Stomp, so you actually went to a concert. You went to saw Chris Stapleton? Yeah, Stapleton was great, just really briefly. We uh, we saw him last year, but uh, this year we saw him again, and he dropped two members. Um, so it was basically a, th- a power trio, which is pretty impressive for country music. They filled the sonic range. It was absolutely amazing. Weather came through. They shut down the lawn for an hour and a half. I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners are there at the time. And uh, but it's just a great time. That's a great venue uh, at Guilford. Um, yeah, can you imagine getting sent out to your car for an hour and a half? And it it made me think of Woodstock. Like they never would have sent people away at Woodstock. That's that's what they do these days. They send them to their cars. <laughs> yeah. Now is this place like? And I, I've never been to a concert. My ne- my nephew and his girlfriend actually went, and then they drove up to Maine so I saw them the next morning so they were telling me about the concert but I didn't even ask them this but is it like a shed where like the people that were closer to the stage like did they need to go to their car or was yeah so everybody uh, it's just like Great Woods the old school Great Woods in Mansfield Mass so it's so if you have lawn tickets then you go out to your car yeah exactly it's it's just like that or say Tanglewood so there's an overhead um, bunch of sections and then a lawn at the way back um, it, I mean, it was a typical storm, typical August storm with thunder and lightning and stuff. But um, Ellie King ended, ended up cutting her set short because of the thunder and lightning. And then uh, Chris came on and killed it. Oh, my God, he killed it. It was just awesome. Chris Stapleton is a really great talent. He really is. Yeah, yeah. I like I like him. I like um, the Zach Brown band. I saw them last year at Fenway. It seems like everybody I knew last weekend was either at Chris Stapleton or they were at Fenway with uh, like Motley Crue, Poison, Def Leppard and Joan Jett. Did, yeah. Did a con- there was tons of people at the, that those those two nights of concerts. Oh, so much fun. It was nice to go. It was absolutely nice to go. Once a year. But the tickets are so damn expensive. Yeah. Well, you only live one stomp. You can't take it with you. <laughs> exactly. And uh hey, listen, have you seen 13 Lives yet? Yeah, no idea that there was a movie about it. I haven't been paying attention to movies. It's about the soccer team in Thailand that went into that cave and got stuck for like 20 plus days. Um, I know the Chen's like Jimmy Jimmy Chin. Is it Chin? Yes. Yeah, he. they made a, an actual documentary. But Ron Howard took the story and just put this whole story together in a, more of a Hollywood uh, dramatic fashion. And um, it's 
incredible. I really recommend it. Great casting. You know, Viggo Mortensen, who played Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, Colin Farrell, actual Thai actors and actresses, phenomenal. Half of it is done on a, like a movie stage. There's no other way you could film that type of thing, but yeah. I think it does give you more of a, a sense of what it must have been like to be a diver in those flooded caves. It's so well done. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And if I remember the story correctly, I think that they had to get the kids into scuba equipment and give them breathing apparatus to get through some really tight water-filled sections, which is crazy that all the kids were able to, you know, make it through that um, pretty, pretty safely. Yeah. Well, they had to put them under anesthesia as well. So that Oh, that's what they did. They had to... The anesthetic that they would provide the kids would last for 30 minutes. And then after 30 minutes, they would have to give them another injection. So this crew of volunteer divers was able to go from, say, you know, the start to the, the finish where the kids were located within four hours. It took four hours of cave scuba diving to get one way or the other. So every half an hour, they would have to re-inject these kids, and there was no way to monitor their breathing, respirations, heart rate, anything. It, it's amazing. When you watch the movie, you really understand how impossible the mission was, and they pulled it off. And I think um, this movie really captures that whole complexity. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, I know I say this a lot. I, I do, I've been watching a lot of TikTok, but I follow this guy on TikTok that's like a cave diving expert. Yeah. So he, he hasn't talked about this particular story, but he like will run down like these really well-known situations where people did cave diving and ended up like dying and stuff. And he would talk about how he would, um, you know, approach certain dives and things like that. There's a couple of like really famous, like I think Mexico has has a bunch of these. I think Florida's got a couple of them. And then like in Norway and Denmark, there's a few crazy like cave dives that people do and that, that have died yeah. on these. So it's super dangerous. But I didn't realize that they put the kids under anesthesia. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, they tied them up. They were just packages. And yeah, uh, waking up like that, Jesus. And oh, then you don't know what some of these kids could have reacted you know, how, how do you know how they could have reacted to the, the, the anesthesia? Yeah, exactly. And one other point about this, the volunteer crew was sort of the secondary. They had to really convince the Thai government to let them in to do this, and they just didn't have the trust factor. And when they finally let them in, um, first off, the, the Thai SEALs had to go in, and they were suggested that, listen, you have to save two-thirds of your oxygen if you want to get back out from where the kids are. Um, the Thai SEALs would get out to where the kids are and be basically at one-third left. Whereas the volunteers that had been doing this for 30 years were regulating their breathing to such a point that they would only use one-third of their tank. So they were basically just holding their breath and just muscling through. That's amazing. Yeah, I'll I'll check it out. I do get freaked out. Like I, I'm, I get freaked out about these like tight cave diving scenes. So we'll see. Yeah, cool stuff. Anyway, right. so that's 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 this week's weird <laughs> entertainment news. So we yeah. got Alone, we got like the Chris Stapleton show, we got this movie Thirteen Live. So I'll put links for everything. Have you heard about the lime explosion? I have my notes. I did look at this. Uh, so lo- what Stomp's talking about is like there's some article about lime disease, and the the cases are just blowing through the roof. Apparently, which is interesting. 
Um, not quite sure why. The the article says that Lyme disease cases skyrocketed, but like I, I don't know. I read the article and it seemed like they did like a um, comparison between like 2007 and now, which I think yeah, like if you go back that far, then Lyme Lyme cases are going to increase. But yeah. I'll be interested to see what the impact is with the data over the next two, three years with COVID having been in place. Like, I wonder if Lyme disease will drop a little bit because not as many people are outside. Well, what do you mean? I mean, a lot of people were outside that had never been outside. Are you talking post-COVID? I'm just talking like the early day. I, I wonder if there's a blip in like in... 2020 numbers. Oh yeah, just yeah. because. But that was sort of before initially that, that summer. I don't think it got as crazy, um, especially because they locked it down. Like those, a lot of the hiking areas. But yeah, who knows? Yeah. Um, and then if anybody's ever interested in in Lyme disease and sort of going down that rabbit hole, I always suggest to check out the Patient Zero podcast by mm-hmm. on New Hampshire Public Radio, which is really good. Patient Zero. So that's by. NHPR. They they talk about the very first cases of Lyme disease that happened in Lyme, Connecticut, and then um, they basically tell the story of the mother of one of the kids that caught Lyme disease and their journey to like identify what the heck was going on and the doctors that she worked with to discover Lyme disease and you know just basically that's like the first episode so it talks about so patient zero and yeah. then from there it expands and tells like the whole story about Lyme disease it gets into why uh, the vaccine didn't work in uh, the, the 90s I think they tested it which is very interesting now that you can sort of compare the way the COVID vaccine was received versus how Lyme disease vaccine was tested and why it was taken off the market back in the 90s. Um, and then it talks a lot about, you know, the idea of chronic Lyme and it sort of breaks down the the question about like, is chronic Lyme actually a thing or is there something else going on? And, you know, what's the challenges around using antibiotics to treat chronic Lyme when they're not clear that it is actually Lyme disease and the, the long-term risks of basically running out of antibiotics because of overuse. So it's, it's just a very interesting um, series of podcasts. I think there's about eight, ep- eight episodes or so. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I'll check it out. Hadn't heard of it. Yeah, it's definitely worth it. But uh, just moving on to weird hiker stuff. Sure. There was a post on the White Mountain Lost and Found um Facebook page, I think it is. Yeah, it's lost and found. So there's this group where if you lose something when you're on trail, you can post. So this mother posted a picture of her son and was like, my kid was hiking uh, somewhere on the Garfield Ridge Trail or Garfield Trail, and uh, he decided to leave his pack. And I don't know if he left his pack with the idea that he was going to go like summit and then come back and get it. Uh, but somebody basically saw the pack on the trail and took it down to the trailhead. So the mother had posted like lost and found and said like, hey, my kid dropped his pack on the trail. Somebody took it. Maybe they came out a different way. I don't know. Um, and then somebody else, matter of fact, it was Al, our friend Al, who often uh, chimes in with, with you know, updates or whatever on if we have questions. He had posted that somebody had left this backpack on the trailhead 
And, you know, there's a bunch of people in the comment section basically saying, like, people shouldn't touch other people's packs if they see something out on the trail, um, leave it alone. And some somebody was like, this is why I'll never slack pack because I'm afraid someone's going to take my backpack. And I was like, slack packing is not even, you don't leave your pack in the middle of the woods. Like, you would give your pack to somebody who's going to meet you at the end of the trail wherever you go (laughs) so it was just a weird like thing but what what i I found interesting was that everybody seemed to think it was like okay to leave your backpack on the trail and that everybody should just be expected not to touch it which i thought was weird like if i see a backpack i'm gonna like be like what's going on is somebody of course in trouble or like did they you know forget it or i don't know i feel like I i would probably take the pack i don't know hopefully the mom got the pack for the kid and maybe they you know my my feedback to the audience is like don't leave your pack like i did that one time when i was going over to like from north kinsman to south kin one of the kinsmans and it was winter and somebody sort of pointed out like they were like hey it's not a great idea and i've never done it again so just keep your pack with you yeah for the most part i mean i can think of certain instances where i might like, for instance, if I want to go bag Mountain Monroe and I leave my pack at the hut, you know, you're talking about a you know, couple tenths of a mile. That That's probably okay. Yeah. In good weather. But generally, you want that stuff with you just in case the weather goes south or you get injured yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Like, yeah. Like Lake of the Clouds to Monroe, maybe Gilhead, you know, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and the next up stomp I have in weird hiker stuff, I had posted a, a series of pictures. I don't know why. I was actually going through my, my photos looking for a picture of you to post on the Instagram site. And Uh-oh. I came across a series of pictures of a hike that I had done with my daughter Caroline on Oliverian Brook that had, I don't know if you saw it, but the green tape. Did you see the green tape that had been put on the trail? Remember that story? Me, me and Caroline ran into like somebody that was in yes. distress and they had yes. written a bunch of stuff. So I wanted to like, I meant to like tell that story last episode, but I forgot to. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the more you hike the in the whites, I think the more likely it is that you'll run into like weird situations. So this, this story that I'm going to tell was probably one of the weirder stories that I've ever run into. So me and Caroline were hiking Oliverian Brook. It was like kind of a crappy day. So I was, and Caroline wanted to get one of her 4,000 footers. So I was like, let's do Passa Conway. There's not a lot of great views anyway. It's kind of an overcast day. Let's just bang it out and, and, you know, put another mountain on your, your list. So we went down Oliverian Brook and we got to the wilderness boundary and we had noticed that there was like somebody had written some arrows and, and, you know, times in the ground and dirt, but I didn't even really pay attention to it because I was like, it could have been just something that happened a few days ago or whatever. And then we got into the wilderness boundary area and then we walked up to the trail signs and we saw that there was like writing on the trail signs that said something about like, um, the trail is not marked, follow the tape. And we were like, (laughs) all right, whatever. Didn't even think anything of it. And then we got to another trail sign and there was another like Sharpie written on it. I, f- I forget what that one said. I think it said something about like um, trail not marked, 
follow um, tape on left tree or something weird. Yeah. So both signs were basically sharpied. Truly, and Jason Voorhees. <laughs> yeah, it was very weird. And I was like, well, it's a wilderness area. So obviously, like the trails are not going to be marked. But oh, I didn't man. think anything of it. So we went up to, that's what it was. We were doing square ledge too, because I, I was pursuing the 52 with a view. So I was like, I can get square ledge. You can get... Um, pass a conway so we went up square ledge and then we cut over to pass conway as we're coming back down we went a different way and we got back into that area where you get close to the wilderness boundary and we start seeing all this green tape everywhere yeah and um the first thing we see is like the guy had written that um you know my knee is bothering me um i'm not doing well gonna head back to the car blah 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 sounds like a troll well, then he had a business card attached to it with his name oh and a phone number. And I was like, oh, wow, I, I should check on this guy. And then there was tape everywhere on this, like, you know, eighth of a mile section of trail. There's, like, tape everywhere. And um, he had also, like, taped a triangle around, like, looked like bear scat or some sort of animal scat and my daughter was getting nervous she's like this is very weird and i was like i was like caroline we need to be on the lookout for somebody that might be in distress you know keep an eye off on the side of the trails i don't know what's going on with this guy because in my mind i was thinking like maybe i don't know what i was thinking but i was like maybe this guy's out here to harm himself or something because it was very weird good word for it and uh, i had no i had no cell connection so i couldn't couldn't get anything out. I was going to call the phone number. And, you know, we keep walking, and there's more and more flagging um, on the side. And then we saw some writing and dirt, and I was like, wow, well, like, we need to be prepared to, like, potentially run up on somebody that's in serious distress. Nobody else in the area at all it was, like, might I think it was, like, a Thursday afternoon or a Friday afternoon or whatever. So finally, you know, we, we go back to the trail sign. There's writing on it, the same thing. And then... You know, I collected all the green tape as I was leaving. I, I picked it all up and, and put it in my pack because I was like, you know, I can at least clean up the mess. And um, we finally get some cell connection. I try calling the phone. I get no answer. Um, I try. I wait five minutes. I try again. Somebody picks up. And then I was like, hi, I'm on a hiking trail. And then they hang up on me. I was like, all right, this is weird. So then I text him and I was like, hey, I just want to check to see if you're safe. Um, are you okay? And I didn't get any response. So we hike out, and um, I called when I got to the the parking lot. Oh, no, it couldn't have been the parking lot because I had no cell connection. I got down from there. I, I just had no cell connection. So we drove down the bottom of the kank, got into Conway, and I called my buddy who is um, – he, he was a dispatcher at Fish and Game. So I was like, hey – we just want to give you a heads up that this happened. Um, do you want to call it in? So he's like, yeah, I'll call it in. They'll go check it out. I gave him the phone number and everything. And I was like, yeah, it would probably be good to call this guy. He was a Massachusetts guy, of course. Hmm. Um, so I, as of doing that, I, had, I got a text back from the guy. And he texted me back, and he, and he was like, uh, he's like, don't, don't bother me. Um, <laughs> You know, if you if you text me again, the the police have your information. Blah 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 blah. Oh my like, god! What? So Jeez. by then I'm pissed. 
So then I called the I called the number again and I left a voicemail and I, I was like, dude, I don't know what the hell's going on, but like me and my daughter were nervous about you. We were afraid that like you might have been hurt. We were spending you know, we were spending extra time sort of looking off the side of the trails to see if you might be around. We were calling out your name and you know, we were looking out for your your well being and now you're telling me that you're gonna like sue me because you have my information because I'm looking out for your well being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, just so you know, fishing game has your information. You vandalized, um, you know, signs. You've made a mess in the, in the wilderness area, and I was like, and I'm like, also, there are no, there are no signs on the wilderness section. Like, you need to be able to navigate. You should have known that going into it or whatever. So I left a, a terse voicemail uh, for the guy, and then um, he just replied back, and he was like, "Stop harassing me" or something. And I was like, "This is so weird." So that's the story. Did you tell him that you're gonna sick nineteen on him? Uh, no, no. She she was like just she was like so confused at that point. But the nice part of the story is Steve Smith, you know, Mountain Wanderer bookstore. He he actually is the trail maintainer for there, so he was able to go out. Like I think I connected with him over Messenger or something, but he was able to go out and sand down the the area. But I never found out what happened with with the fishing game. I think they followed up with the guy and basically just must have just assumed that he was crazy. It sounds like a little bit of uh, meth or maybe some crack cocaine. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Jeez. I don't know. But I have the green tape in my car, so I'm going to bring it to Reckless with me. <laughs> you can decorate Reckless with it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got the guy's phone number in my in my phone, too. I, every once in a while, I think I'm going to call. I'm I like, maybe I'll call him. Maybe we can call him live. <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> Well, that's a freaky story, man. Yeah, it was freaky like when we were on the, because I was like, I remember saying to Caroline, I was like, look, I don't know, we're pretty far in, you know, we're three miles in or so. And I was like, this guy may be in distress, so we have to be prepared to to help him. Yeah. You know, there's nobody else around. So yeah. it was very weird. Well, I'm glad you're safe. I mean, that's a situation where I would, i probably like turn away and just back out like, ah. Uh, I'll report it, but this hike's over. Like, nah, I don't want to go any deeper here. Yeah. And I was, part of me was like, I was like, I want to be a good example to my daughter and make sure that like, she understands that something like that happens. Like we want to make sure we communicate to the authorities and all this stuff. And then the guy's like going to sue me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I wouldn't worry about that, but I would, I would definitely worry about some unhinged individual in the middle of the woods, but that's crazy, man. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and then uh, keeping with the weird stuff, so Lake Mead out in Las Vegas. Um, it's getting worse and they're worse. They're getting down to, yeah, they're getting down to Deadpool level here. So every time there's a drought situation, like they start finding cars and bodies and all kinds of stuff. So yeah. you, you had written something in here, Stomp. Well, yeah, I, th- I think they're losing eight inches per week, if I remember correctly, but the lower it gets the more bodies they find, which is really interesting because I think, you know, most of us know from at least the movies anyway that uh, the mafia and whatnot would dispose of bodies in the lake. So (laughs) those bodies are starting to pop up in barrels and all kinds of things. So it's very interesting. You know, YouTube has a bunch of um, links and uh, channels that you can look at to get updates, but uh, the fourth body has been found. Interesting. I'm going out to Vegas in, in October. Stomp. You can you can come with me if you want. We oh, can investigate. Let's do it. Oh yeah. You know what? The scariest thing about investigating 
a lot of people are getting stuck, whether it's by car or by foot. They're, you know, people are, you know, sinking up to their waist or their shoulders in mud that they think is solid, but underneath this crust of dry, I don't know, sand or whatever, it, it's just totally damp. So cars, gross. gross. Well, would you go out funny. there and check it out? Well, I'm going, I'm doing a guy's trip in the end of October. Um, and we may, I told my friend, I was like, we should definitely go out to Hoover Dam, check out Lake Mead and that whole area, just because it's cool. Like it's, 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 um, it's, it's a, it's a good area there. Um, but I don't think I'll be getting into the lake itself, but I did add a little bit of a note here, Stomp, that like I was reading about Lake Mead. So right. there's Lake Mead and then there's the Hoover Dam and then further down river, there is Lake Powell and then... There's another dam that we went to a couple of years ago when we were out in Sedona and we drove up to the Grand Canyon. I forget the name of that one. This is but, amazing. I'm looking at it now. It, yeah, exactly. But like Hoover Dam and Lake Mead, they essentially have like, they have the bypass area where they can let water go. And then they have another set of pumps that they can, they can release water to. And then what you're talking about when you say Deadpool is that the water gets low enough where it can't be sucked in by those those two the yeah the standing pumps exactly exactly yeah and then those so those pumps cannot get it over the the dam but Las Vegas was smart enough they invested a lot of like money in effort to put in another set of pumps that are below the Deadpool section so the it, the Lake Mead will go to Deadpool in relation to getting water down river, but it will not reach Deadpool status for Las Vegas. I think they've got another like 90 feet or something like that. So Vegas will not <laughs> never run out of water. <laughs> so damn the rest of the uh, West Coast. Like, are you kidding me? Isn't that wild? Yes and no. But the other thing I read about Las Vegas is that, yes, they do have access to more water and they're obviously closer to it. But they're also much more efficient than most of the other large urban areas that rely on the Colorado River. So they do a ton with recycling and, you know, they don't use the same amount of water that, like, say, California or Arizona does for, like, lawns and things like that. Yeah, gotcha. Definitely recommend if you're ever out there to... um, to go check out uh, the Hoover Dam and uh, Lake Mead. Yeah, I've been there once, but it was much healthier. Yeah, yeah. And then the other dam that I was talking about, so there's Lake Mead and Hoover Dam, and then when you get into um, like the Arizona-Utah border, which is a little farther south, but uh, not as far south as the Grand Canyon, there's the Glen Canyon Dam Mm -hmm. and Lake Powell. Right. So, which is a cool like Lake Powell. So, like, it's got all those slot canyons and stuff that you can go into. Like Lake Mead, I th- my recollection is that Lake Mead is like basically like a large lake, whereas Glen Canyon Dam and then the Lake Powell area has those like narrow slot canyons that you can sort of boat into and like and kayak in and stuff. It's pretty cool. Oh, you'll have a great time. It's awesome out there. I love the desert. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah, and I think we're going to be in Vegas most of the time doing, like, guy stuff and, like, gambling and going out to eat and hanging out by the pool, but I definitely want to do do a little bit of exploring. Wow, what an intro. 
Yeah, yeah, that was a good intro. So, <laughs> um, sponsor and coffee talk stomp. All right. So we have some donations. We have uh, Jennifer Rooks donated one hundred dollars to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council. We have uh, Reckless Steve donated three, and then John is off playing. Donated three as well. And for sponsors, we have EMS, your Northeast go-to for outdoor gear, guidance, education, and more since 1967. Check them out at EMS.com. And I wish I had my readers right now because I'm barely able to read my phone. (laughs) I'm struggling here, guys. I don't know what's going on. Uh, Let's see. Reckless. Oh, yes. At Reckless Brewing, where you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch. Many 4K footers in less than 10 minutes from the five corners. Very cool, very cool. And Spinner's Pizza Parlor. Family owned since 1994, specializing in hand-spun, thin-crust Italian pizza with their own homemade sauce. Visit the region's number one voted pizza and customer service after your hike. These guys are located right off of 93, Dascom Road in Mass. And uh, stop by and tell Darls and Pops that you want a sticker. In Andover, Mass. <laughs> right. Andover. Yes. And they're still waiting for your honorable visit yeah i gotta get in there i gotta get in there this has been a crazy week Andover, Andover. so um yeah it's a nice time but i do That's i will great. get in there it's just it's been a crazy week and i'm 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 trying to wrap up i'm going out on vacation and then i'm going to be doing that pammy loop but i'll talk about that in a minute but uh welcome to episode 70 of the sounds like a search and rescue podcast um this week again i kick stomp out of the studio uh-huh. and uh, i was able to do a segment with Brittany from um the taylor james steves foundation so taylor was a young man who unfortunately passed away from cancer um but his legacy in love of the outdoors continues on to the foundation um so Brittany is going to uh talk a little bit about uh, the foundation the fundraiser that they're working on and we talk a little bit about hiking and um taylor's legacy so it was a good se- good segment. So we'll dump out of this and into that segment in a moment, and then we'll come back and do some recent search and rescue news. Been a lot of stuff going on uh, both nationally and locally that we got to catch up on. So I'm Mike, and I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Alrighty, Stomp. You drinking anything good tonight? Yeah, I got a little Erastus. Awesome. And then you have you have some note in here about Reckless Steve with a cheese. <laughs> oh, yeah, Reckless Steve sent me a text saying that he actually has a decanter of Hannah Dustin. Do you remember Hannah from the uh, most recent episode in Haverhill? I do. Yeah. Yeah, I do. So he actually has a decanter. A por- It looks like it was porcelain, but it's uh, pretty interesting. So, of course, Stephen is on the cutting edge of the... Uh, decanter slash historical figure front i feel like i should know this but i um i don't even know what is a decanter that's more or less a uh, a vase or a holder of say wine or some fine beverage that you might want to put on there so this is a decanter that like is it in the shape of hannah dustin or is it like signed by her or what i don't understand <laughs> 
Is it it's, like a Mrs. Butterworth thing, but like a decanter? Exactly. You know, it's okay. funny because he sent me a picture of it, and it's it's not profile. It's it's facing forward, so it looks like yeah, it looks exactly like that, just like a a, a maple syrup bottle, but it's in porcelain. It's pretty neat, pretty right, busty. Yeah, I, see. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I could say that a busty little image, but uh, yeah. That's Hannah. So the, I see one on the thing. So it says 1973 Jim Beam, Hannah Dustin, Granite State heroine of 1697. So <laughs> I got to see this thing. I got to see this. So on the theme of Hannah Dustin, we actually, <laughs> you know, our friend. So we have a friend, me and Stomp have a friend, Tasha. So you know Tasha and Dan, right? Right. So she has written a book about Hannah Dustin. So she had messaged me and she was, first of all, I, I mentioned like, oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I'm looking at here. Okay. So, so she, like yeah. I said, she's pretty busty. <laughs> is it naked? Is she naked? No, she's dressed, but. Uh, it's just big cleavage there. Yeah. So, but anyway, so Tasha, <laughs> it, she has written a book about Hannah Dustin. So she like messaged me and she's like, dude, I can't believe you said 1800. It's like 16. So I apologized. And then I was like, dude, you got to come on. Like, so we'll get Tasha on at some point to, uh, to talk about Hannah Dustin and the book that she wrote. And then, um, we can talk hiking. She, she'll have a ton of stuff to cover. Ta- I missed it. Tasha who? Tasha and Spunches? Dan. Sp- okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. So she wrote um, she wrote a book about Hannah Dustin. So, um, wow. and they're in the same crew as like for the audience. Like this is all our like hiking friends, like uh, Alvaro and Susie and Tasha and Dan were part of it. So just coincidentally, I, I feel like I knew this already, but I had forgotten. But like she had reached out to me and was like, "Dude, I wrote a book about Hannah Dustin." So uh, we're gonna get her on at some point. Well, it's sort yeah. of neat because um, Mrs. Stomp and Tasha are. are- friends so maybe we can drag them over to the studio to record in person exactly so i'll work on scheduling that that's awesome um yeah and then i'm drinking just another true north so i'm on my third of four so i'm down to one beer a week at this point so not bad nice yeah Yeah. i saw some recent pics of you you're looking slim and fit and ready for the winter i guess (laughs) we'll see we'll see um but recent hike stomp where you been Oh man, you know, it's like just doing the whole OCD, was sitting on the couch waiting for calls, but um, I did get out this afternoon with Mrs. Stomp for a little Smartsbrook adventure, and we went up to the, sort of the, the Action Ledges, I guess they're called, and there's a quartz pit there that I talked about with you many episodes ago um, that I had actually reported to the U.S. Forest Service because it was just so gigantic. And today it looked pretty much the same. I didn't notice any game cameras or anything like that up. But um, yeah, it's pretty neat. So it was just a nice time out. Um, she and I are trying to get out more often together. Um, it's a, like I said, it's just two ships in the night lately. We've just been so busy. How about yourself? I got out on Sunday, I think this is like my third or fourth Sunday in a row hiking, so yeah. I had um, my daughter Caroline, who we now call 19, she, um, <laughs> right. yeah, and she doesn't like that, <laughs> she doesn't really like that name, 
but she um, <laughs> she wanted to get a 4,000 footer done. So I was like, let's do, originally we were going to do Wombat. And then I was like, well, you haven't done Jackson. So um, we had originally attempted Jackson with her cousin. And I had, <laughs> I had hiked with him a couple of years ago. And we got up to that, like, um, you know, that waterfall where you, the split between the Jackson and Webster trail. There's like the little waterfall where you head up to Webster. Yep. I don't know if okay. you remember or not. Sure. But anyway, like I was hiking with Caroline and my nephew, uh, Nicholas, and I like looked down at Nicholas's shoes and they're like ripped apart completely. And we were supposed to do Webster Jackson. This was like two, three years ago. And I looked at Nicholas's shoes and I'm like, dude, your shoes are like, and he's like probably 13 or 14 or something like that. And I was like, <laughs> your shoes are ripped apart. Like your socks are coming out. Like, how did you even hike this far? And and he's like, oh, it's cool, man. It's cool. Like, I think that they... um you know, I don't think he knew any better, but I was like, yeah, we got to turn around. I, I can't take you up there with like, you're falling out of your shoes. Yeah, so we call. ended up turning around. So I had forgotten. So I told Caroline, I was like, let's do Webster Jackson. So we went up just ourselves and uh, went up to Webster and then hopped over to Jackson. And wow, what amazing views. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's beautiful. It's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe people climb up that slide on Webster. That's insane. Oh, bushwhacking, just yeah, straight up that yeah. gully. Yeah, yeah. It's. I've been curious about doing it, but it looks really intense. Yeah, I'd love to, I would love to do it. I think we should try it some. Uh, uh. <laughs> we'll see. We'll put it on the list. We'll put it on okay, the list. Okay, yeah. So. And listen, uh, we don't have to do the, the notables. We have like 10 million, but I will yeah. say that there's one that stands out in particular for myself and... Um, it is sent in by Full Strength Coffee, and he, he did a two-day prezi and apparently ran into crazy conditions with hail, high winds, um, socked in. This is why this stands out amongst the others. He had a minor slip and decided that it was best to take Crawford out rather than tackling the other summits and i think that's really great in terms of just personal safety recognizing a potential bad situation and uh making the right call so nice work brother and uh keep up the good work thank you everybody for submitting the uh notable hikes we do see you and um you know we'll try to recognize you when we can I told you. I told you you weren't going to be able to keep up, Storm. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like week to week, it's only about like 15 or so, but I know we're, we're sort of running behind on this one. But uh, Yeah, yeah, we're running out of time. But uh, yeah. one cool thing, just going back to that hike for a minute, we were coming down Jackson and uh, there was these two older women that were um, in front of us and they had to, there, there's like a couple of rock sections or whatever, so they were taking their time. And we were chatting with the ladies. I was like, you know, no rush on us. It's, you know, I'm happy to get the rest, whatever. And then uh, we got to talking. You know, we were basically just like, uh, well, we're working on my daughter's 4,000-footer list. And, you know, one of them had mentioned, she's like, oh, I've done this this peak 12 months out of the year, every month out of the year. And I was like, oh, are you gridding? And she had said, she's like, she's working on her second round of grids. And uh, she's like, I'm 77 years old. And um, so she had already gridded and then she had completed the red line as well. 
And I don't know how far along she is on her second grid, but it was pretty impressive. I was like, wow, that's that's fantastic. So, And then the other lady that was with her was, I think, pretty far along in her grid as well. But And she gave me her name, but I forget it now. So I'm so bad with that stuff. Hmm. I saw a license plate today that said eight grids, a New Hampshire license plate. Like, is it possible to do eight grids? That'd be no. eight years no. of work. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not even. So the grid, like, there's very few people that have actually done a single year grid. Okay. I think. Um, so it's was, all 48 in all 12 months, correct? Correct. But it does. You don't have to do it in a year. I oh, think, I like, see. There was a lady that did it in a year, and then uh, the Phil Phil Kashia has done it. Um, but I don't know if anybody else has done it in a single year. But like a lot of people, it'll take them whatever eight years, six years, or whatever because you know you don't get every peak. Gotcha. Okay, I was curious. Year. I'm like, that's got to be a hiker because when I drive to work and stuff, I always see these hiking uh, license plates like you know. 100 highest or any 67 whatever it's like I, I see people all the time yeah exactly but anyway i thought that was pretty cool and um i did i felt kind of douchey doing it but i did mention i was like hey i'm uh i do a podcast if you're doing a <laughs> podcast and she was like That's she was like well i've tried to listen to um backpacker radio or the trek or something like that and she i don't really like those ones but i was like well try us out we're white mountain specific and um that's funny you know, i wonder she's why listening. i wonder what the critique is i think she she was like you know they talk a lot about like stupid things like um you know like through hiking stuff and like relationships and things like that on the trail so I was uh-huh. like, we don't have that kind of drama uh yeah occasionally but yeah but huh. all right stomp so we're gonna move into section uh, segment one here and um, I got a chance to sit down with Brittany, who is one of the lead organizers of the uh, Taylor James Steves Foundation. So they are kicking off their annual fundraiser. And Taylor was a young man that had passed away um, with lung cancer. And, you know, it's a, I'll let Brittany tell the story in the, in the segment, but it's, a, it's sort of a you know, unfortunate thing, young person that passed away. And uh, he had a legacy and a love of the outdoors. So his friends have all sort of stay together to build this foundation that supports people that have found themselves um, diagnosed with cancer and who may be struggling to support themselves financially. Cancer doesn't care whether or not whether you're rich, poor, or otherwise. It just basically mm-hmm. does its thing. So this foundation seeks to support people financially that find themselves diagnosed with cancer. Okay. Excellent. So it's an, another opportunity for uh, uh, you know to help help out with a fundraiser and, and, and get involved with hiking. So um, we'll we'll talk to Brittany and then come back out and cover some search and rescue news later. Okay. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. Are you nervous? Have you ever done a podcast? How are you feeling? 
Uh, I'm a little bit nervous. I feel like mainly because it's 95,000 degrees in my house. Um, I have done one podcast before. I did one last year, but um, I have never done one on not in person. So this is going to be a little new for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, we got the we got the audio and the video thing going on here perfectly, so it should be pretty good. Um, so, I guess maybe could you start off and sort of introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you came to learn about the podcast, and then we'll get into um, the Taylor James Steves Foundation. Um, so, why don't, why don't you start by introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, so, my name is Brittany Wasick, and I am the co-chair of the Taylor James Steves Foundation, which is. Uh, it's in southern Maine, and um, I came to know about your podcast just from hiking in the White Mountains and started following, you know, the New Hampshire 4,000-footers Facebook page and all the other groups and came across you guys, and I've been listening now for, I'll be honest, just a few months, but I did discover you guys quite a few months ago, and um, yeah, so I um, and co-chair of the foundation, and I also am a respiratory therapist, so I work at Maine Medical Center, and uh, both things keep me very busy. Awesome, awesome. And then uh, can you talk a little bit about your hiking background? Have you been a, a hiker for a long time, or did you just get into it? What What are you focusing on right now for hiking? Uh, I have always loved hiking. I didn't quite get fully, fully into it, to be honest, until um, Taylor got sick, truly. Um, he kind of reinstated my desire to get back outside and start to really focus on mountains. And, um, I would say probably 2017, um, I hiked Katahdin and that pretty much like fueled my fire to, um, start really going for like the big mountains. I never thought that I would be able to do them to be honest. And then I feel like Katahdin is a nice confidence booster. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you could do Katahdin in Mount Washington, like everything else seems like it's going to be, you know, it's possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I, yeah, Katahdin, best mountain in the world in my book, but. Awesome. Now, are you, uh, do you are you pursuing like the 4,000 footers or any other list at this point? Yep. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I'm not this one season 48, um, 4,000 footers, but I am trying to finish it. I'm on 24 right now 48 um so i was going pretty aggressively at it last year um i did the presidential traverse last fall and quite a few other mountains last summer but i got a puppy this fall and he's not quite ready for the big times yet so we're still we're still in the little mountains for now but uh hopefully hopefully we'll be able to get back out there soon all right. So the plan now. How long do you have to wait until the puppy's okay to hike in in, in the big mountains? Uh, well, he physically is ready, so he's just a little bit over a year now. Um, but for me, I just get very nervous about having a dog out in those big mountains, and I would prefer to have him off leash just because I feel like for my safety and for his safety. Um, so not I won't take him out until his recall is a hundred percent. Until I know that if a squirrel comes running across the trail. Uh, I won't lose them forever because there's no service out in the White Mountains so you, in most places, so you can't really count on being able to track him down if you were to have a GPS collar on him or anything. So he's pretty close. He's pretty close. I might this fall. I might try. Yeah. I might try Pierce with him and get like a nice, a good, easy one out of the way. Yeah, yeah. The um, it's crazy. I was just hiking on Caps Ridge, um, in 
I saw probably as I, I, I started early, so I was coming down and I was like below tree line and people started coming up and there was like almost like four dogs in a row. There was like a German Shepherd, there was a Black Lab, um, I think there was a, a Doodle and then one other dog. And it was like, I was sort of thinking to myself, I was like, people take for granted dog. I see a ton of dogs in the whites mm-hmm. and almost every scenario where I see the dogs, if especially if they're off leash. Like I don't make eye contact with the dogs. I sort of just will make eye contact with the owners and I'll assume that the dog is sort of well-trained. And it's almost like 99% of the time that's the case is the dogs won't approach. They'll just do their own thing. If you, as long as you don't engage with them Mm -hmm. and they, you know, they know to stay on trail and they stay close to their owners. But I think people take that for granted. Like my, I had a dog when I was younger and you know, we had to keep him on the leash the whole time because he would have taken off. So it's, it's a lot of work I would assume, right? Yeah, we do. We do a lot of training. We spend a lot of money. Uh, we've started, I got him last September and just been slowly working up, you know, starting on like tiny little hills nearby our house, just kind of getting our way up there. But I, yeah, I, I'm a, kind of a nervous Nelly. So I think uh, it'll take me a little while before I feel fully comfortable with him up there. But yeah, yeah. he'll be a good hiking companion. He's, he loves the mountains. So um, he'll be a good buddy. Yeah, yeah, you got to work on yourself. I think, and again, I, it's been a year since I had a dog because my wife won't let me have one. If you listen to the show, <laughs> you'll hear the saga. But like the dogs can feel your anxiety, you know, especially if you're on the leash, like they'll feel your anxiety. So you got to like mentally just prepare yourself and be like, it's going to be perfect. And then yeah. it'll, it'll happen. But for people who work in healthcare, that's like out the window. I can't, <laughs> I can't turn off the stress or anxiety. That's true. <laughs> just, that's yeah, true. It doesn't that happen. True. So, um, all right. Well, um, hopefully you can get out soon. And um, I guess, can we get into a little bit of background on Taylor? Can you tell us? So the, you're here to support the, a fundraiser for the foundation that's named after Taylor. Um, so can you give a little bit of background about who he was, what your relationship was, and talk a little bit about his influence on others and, um, and, and a little bit about the foundation? Absolutely. Uh, so Taylor was one of my childhood best friends. Um, he was kind of one of those people who was just everybody's friend. He got along with everybody. He was kind of one of the social butterflies who like connected every group of friends together as you were growing up. And he was one of those people, you know, I feel like you, you go through school and you lose contact with a lot of people that you grew up with as you start to mature and get older. But he was somebody that no matter what kind of just we always stayed close. We actually both ended up going to respiratory therapy school and um, we both became respiratory therapists, which was another thing that we could kind of connect on. And um, as he was finishing up respiratory therapy school, he was a year behind me. Um, he started to complain about some back pain. He was 29 years old at this time, mind you. Um, so he had attributed it to a flag football injury. Um, he, he had fallen onto a football a few months prior. So he was like, you know, I feel like I must've cracked a rib or something. But as the months went on, he kind of was noticing that he was getting this dry cough on top of it. And at the time he was finishing school, so he didn't have health insurance. So he's like, well, I can't, I can't go to the doctor until I, um, finish respiratory school and start my job at the hospital because I I don't have insurance. But finally it got to the point where it was bad enough that he went into the hospital um, and they did a chest x-ray and they found that he had fluid around his lungs, which 
for a 29 year old is extremely concerning and very rare. It doesn't happen very often at all. So they kind of immediately went in and did a biopsy of his lungs and they discovered that he had stage four lung cancer. Um, and it had already metastasized at that time to his liver and his spine. And, um, so that was a shock obviously to him and to everybody in our lives. He had never smoked cigarettes in his, in, in his entire life. So we're like, what, how is it possible that somebody could have this kind of diagnosis that quickly? Um, yeah. yeah. Now, did, did they, was there anybody around him that had similar, I always hear these stories about like clusters of cancer in different areas. Like there was just a story in New Jersey about like a hundred people that were associated with a particular school. Did, did they ever come up with any, any clusters or was it just a one-off situation? It was just him. Um, his whole family went and got tested because there's a, um, there's a lot of stuff that's coming out now about radon and how much of an effect it can mm -hmm. have on, um, especially in Maine, we have so much ledge um, in our ground. So Maine is, has a really, really high in, incidence of radon. Um, so the whole, their whole family went and got tested for uh, the genes that Taylor had that were mutated. And none of them are positive for that same gene. Um, and then thank God, no one else in my close circle um, had any diagnosis either because that was just so uh, devastating to our entire community that I couldn't even imagine if it happened more than more than just him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so he he gets diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Um, what's what happened once he found that out? Uh, well, his first desire was to fight as hard as he possibly could. Um, so. The treatment for lung cancer has actually come a long way in the last 10 years. Uh, there's a lot of targeted gene therapies now that don't require chemotherapy. So um, a lot of people that have gene mutations can go on this targeted gene therapy and live like a pretty um, regular life with little to no side effects, which is amazing because they don't have to immediately start chemotherapy and just feel terrible all the time. So he started this targeted gene therapy and he was able for about six months, was still working at the hospital. Um, I think he hiked um, backpack, tumble down, hiked Franconia Ridge, Liberty, Flume. I think he did but like a Webster Jackson loop as well. And he only had one lung at that time. His tumors took up almost one entire lung. So he did, he was able to do all of that hiking, uh, with just one lung. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty incredible. Yeah. And, um, did he, as he was doing those hikes, did he take a lot of people with him or was he a solo hiker? Would it, would it, he, it sounds like a social guy. So my guess is he probably had a big crew with him, right? Yeah. He would always, we have a lot of close friends that are big hikers, but, um, for one trip, especially, uh, he really wanted to go backpack tumble down and stay on the top of tumble down. And he brought my husband and a couple of his friends who aren't big hikers and, uh, Taylor with his one lung, uh, basically blew the rest of the guys out of the water who, <laughs> who are both on too long, perfectly healthy, and he was the one who was going past all of them. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I think the, the, the part of it's like, I think part of it's lung capacity, but I do think that there's something to be said about like when when you have experience, like you talked about, like the first time you did Katahdin, once you do like these big mountains, like I think that that experience and the confidence um, sort of outweighs the, the physical um, challenges that you might be dealing with. So, mm -hmm. so that's yeah. great. Now, was he, um, 
with the treatment that he had to go through, uh, was, he sounds like a positive guy. Was he hopeful that like the, the treatments were going to work for him? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. His, he had like just such a strong mindset through everything. So, and at first those gene, the targeted gene therapies worked amazingly for him. His tumors shrunk in half. Um, the mets that were in his spine kind of showed signs of improvement. So for a while he was doing fantastic. So there was no reason to not think he was going to do great. Um, a lot of people now like these drugs tend to work for like five to seven years before your body develops, um, kind of stops responding to it anymore. But unfortunately he developed that resistance to the drug within six months. Um, and his oncologist was like blown away cause he, built a resistance so quickly and he told him that he was the one percent of the one percent so the one percent that gets this type of cancer and then he's the one percent on top of that who develops this resistance to the drug as quickly as he did got it and then um did he and again i i don't know i don't have a perspective on this just because um you know i haven't been super close to people that have been dealing with you know, sort of facing their mortality in this way. So I don't have a, I had a little bit of experience, but older, older family members, um, but not like young people. So do you, did he, did he ever sort of get, um, sort of, I guess, did he ever sort of give you his perspective about like facing his mortality or did he just stay positive most, most of the time? Um, he, to everyone around him, he was extremely positive pretty much all the time because he truly believes that like keeping that positive mindset would truly um, keep you healthier longer, right? If you believe it, it will happen. If you believe it enough, then it'll stay that way. But um, him and I had kind of a different relationship because we both, because I worked in healthcare um, and I was kind of the only person around him who like understood the medical jargon of everything that was going on. and. I remember one day he um, got admitted to the hospital for severe back pain and he had texted me because I was working that day at the hospital and he's like, hey, I'm in the emergency room. So I went down to see him and um, he, that was the first time he, and the only time he ever said to me, like, I feel like I'm dying. And that um, shook me to my core because I hadn't heard anything like that ever from him. Um, so it was, yeah, that was that was a eye opening moment, and I, at that moment, I was like, "Okay, things are things are not good right now." Yeah, and it's hard. Like I know, like growing up, like you go through the friend group thing, and you know the friend group evolves. Like everybody knows each other in high school, and then all of a sudden, like people start getting engaged, and they start getting married, and they start having kids, and it's like this type of thing when somebody gets sick like this is not in the plans, and it's it's sort of like you're you're on your way to just starting your life, and you know, marriage, family, whatever's in store for you and your friends, it, it's, it must have really been difficult for your, your group to, to have to deal with this. And obviously, you know, um, his, his own personal view must have been, you know, a struggle to, to keep it positive. Yeah, he was an incredible writer. Um, he wrote the whole time he was sick, and he wrote, he wrote this beautiful, like, 14-page story about his illness, um, which we, we all finally got to read when he had passed away and it was just amazing to read the things that he was feeling and everything during that time and just oh he was just an incredible person and um 
you know, everybody, everybody says that about somebody when they pass away, that they passed away way before they should have, or they were too good for this world. But I, I can't even speak it enough of how incredibly true that was about Taylor. He was truly the most amazing person I ever knew in my entire life. And, um, so humble, so kind, was just an amazing person. So, so much so that we felt we had to continue his honor forever. <laughs> and yeah. And I, I mean, I wish that I would take him back in a second for anything, but if we can bring some solace to people who are kind of going through the same thing, then it's like a tiny, tiny little bit of goodness, I guess that could have possibly come out of the most yeah. horrible situation ever. Yeah, yeah, it's really sad. So now, um, so you start when he did pass away. You started uh, the you and your friend started the Taylor James Steves Foundation. Can you talk a little bit about the creation of the foundation and what the purpose is, and um, you know how you can get involved to, to help out? Yeah, absolutely. So um, he was diagnosed um, the day before his thirtieth thirtieth first birthday, and he went through treatment for. A little over a year and he passed away july 22nd of the following year so he passed away um in 2018 and within a few months um a group of our friends came together and we were like we need to do something in his honor we need to help people like taylor because the main reason i feel like we kind of really felt a need was because lung cancer is such a stigmatized form of cancer you know every throughout history everybody's just believed that people who have lung cancer basically smoked their lives away and because of that it's the least funded form of cancer even though it's the second highest killer in the united states so when taylor was sick all he wanted to do was live out the rest of his days doing the things he enjoyed being an outdoors being with his family and his friends and he was constantly dealing with insurance companies and having to go to the hospital and, you know, worry, stressing about whether his parents were going to be able to afford all of his medical bills when he was gone and all of these things. And there was really no like financial support that we could find for him. And so afterwards we were like, there is just such a need for, first of all, awareness for lung cancer and how if you have lungs, you can get lung cancer. It does not matter. If you smoke your whole life away, it does not matter one bit. You can be a marathon runner and you can get diagnosed with lung cancer. But second, also to feed this dynamic, this group of people who are so under supported. So um, we kind of, uh, I have a, our group of friends is very, um, very driven, huge goals, big lofty goals. And so we got together and we had these like, <laughs> immediately these grand plans of everything that we were going to do. We were going to change the world immediately. And, um, <laughs> so yeah, the foundation was born in like the fall of 2018 and, um, we're going on our, on our fourth year now. And what are the main uh, fundraisers that you, that you've, um, created through the foundation? So, uh, we started off, um, we did like our first launch party, which was in person. It was in 2019, November of 2019. So the first year we were kind of like get everything together, trying to figure out, get all the ducks in a row. Uh, Cause you're basically starting a business when you start a nonprofit and none of us had experience starting a nonprofit. So uh, we threw this launch party. It was, it was huge success. Like 250 people showed up to this launch party and 
than COVID hit. And every opportunity for us to do in-person fundraising events were toast. Uh, especially being a lung cancer foundation, we were never going to risk introduce, having people in the same room together if there was any sort of risk. If we had any immunocompromised people, we just felt like that was a really bad look. Um, so summer of 2019, kind of shortly after COVID started, we were like, maybe we should try to take advantage of this like not being able to see people. Everybody still wants to get outside. Everybody wants to do something. So we started trying to brainstorm. We were like, oh, could we do a virtual 5K? And we're like, oh, that's been done. Everybody does a virtual 5K. So we were like, well, Taylor loved to hike. Like, let's see if, let's think if we can do something with hiking. And we kind of like started brainstorming and came up with the Taylor Summit Challenge, um, which is a virtual month-long hiking challenge uh, where participants, hike wherever they want. They can hike in the entire world, any mountain that they would like, as long as it's registered on all trails. Um, and they track their elevation gained um, throughout the entire month. And then the cumulative score of the amount that they hiked, as well as the amount uh, that they fundraised kind of comes together. And that's how we determine a winner. And we plan, you know, we planned it out really last minute in 2020, I think was the first one. Okay. Um, and we didn't know what to expect, and we ended up raising about $20,000 uh, the first year that we ran the event, and we kind of realized that, okay, I think this will actually work for, for a fall event, and everybody loved doing it. So uh, we kept going, and we're coming up now. This is going to be our third year doing the Taste Summit Challenge. So um, it's been really successful. Awesome. And then is it, do you sign up through, how do you sign up to, to, to join the, uh, the, the fundraiser? Uh, so we use a website called Run Sign Up, and it's all uh, one kind of everything in one type website. So you sign up, you track all of your elevation through that website, your leaderboards are all on that website as well. Everybody's pictures and posts and everything are all over the website too. So um, it's runsignup.com. Um, but you can access that through our website because, um, yeah, the site isn't quite active yet because we haven't started signups yet for the challenge. But the portal that we use is really nice. It's super simple. It makes kind of everything really easy for everyone, which is which is good. Awesome. And then, what are the uh, what sort of elevation are our teams putting in for this? Um, so our winner last year, she hiked, uh, I think, 35,000 feet of elevation, mm. and she raised about $3,500 for the foundation. Um, so the way that we do it is, right. so every foot that you hike is worth one point. Um, and then every uh, dollar that you fundraise is worth 10 points. So the fund is kind of fundraising heavy, but um, the way that it worked out was that together with 30,000 feet of elevation and $3,000 worth of fundraising, she had a total score of like 60,000 points. Um, so she was the winner. Okay. And um, yeah, she last year we did some pretty awesome prizes. We had some hyperlight gear last year. Uh, she won a weekend at a condo in the White Mountains. Um, uh, Gossamer, some Gossamer gear. There's a whole bunch of really awesome prizes for the winners. Yeah, yeah. I like the gamifying it, like you know the 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 competition there. It's a, it's always fun to just uh, 
especially when it comes to elevation gain to to try to plan out like four or five hikes over the course of a month to get some get some elevation in there but that's pretty good that's pretty impressive 35,000 feet of elevation gain that's like I think three at least three pemi loops yeah you know or or three or four presidential traverses so that's that's pretty good yeah her and I um she lives in Bethel um, so she has pretty easy access to mountains, which is nice. But her and I did the presidential traverse during the challenge last year, which was awesome. Um, so that was like 8,000 feet of elevation gain for both of us. And then um, she did, um, what else did she do? She did like the Tom Field, Willie, uh, Avalon, mm-hmm. backpacking loop. Um, but lots of just trips up, stuff up in Bethel, Maine. So like Long Mountain, um what are the other ones up there? Um, what's the one on the, I can't think right now. The 4,000 footer that's right there. Old spec. Oh yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are all, uh, craft and notch that area there. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, we had people, um, one somebody was hiking out in Colorado, did a 14,000 footer. Um, there's lots of people are doing some really awesome stuff and it's really cool to see, um, and just everybody like just encouraging everybody to get outside in the fall which is the best time to hike everybody loves to hike in the fall it's so beautiful and that's a big thing we wanted was to encourage people to get outside because that is what taylor loved and um yeah any way that we can do it we will yeah. do you remember what was his what was his like last hike before he uh uh, had to go into the hospital. Do you, you remember? I think I was actually looking through his Facebook today to try to see, and I think it was Jackson Webster, and it was in December. Okay. It was in December of that year, so he got diagnosed that July, and by that January, he was pretty much down for the count as far as wouldn't be able to to hike mountains anymore after that. So um, had Good. the pictures that I was looking at, he had like a beautiful day on Jackson Webster, like some fresh snow on the ground overlooking the presidential. So I feel like that's a good. So he wasn't afraid. He was four season hiker. He wasn't afraid to get out in the winter. No, God, no. He was a, um, he was a whitewater rafting guide. He was also like a wilderness therapy guide. So, um, you know, when kids go into the woods for 10 days and try to, if they're mm-hmm. bad at school or whatever it may be, but yeah, he was a guide, a wilderness guide, a whitewater rafting guide. He never had any fears of any any of that stuff. Yeah, he was a four season hiker for sure. And what what motivated him to start looking at um, becoming a respiratory therapist? Was he um, was he getting sort of tired of doing the outdoor adventure work, or was he just looking to get something a little bit more stable? Or do you know the story behind that? Um. So I think it really just came down to wanting a little bit more stability, um, but wanting a job that would give him the freedom to do the things that he wanted to do. So um, being in healthcare is nice. We work 312. Uh, So the joy for him was not having to do necessarily the nursing work that um, didn't appeal to him, um, but still having four days off a week to be able to go and hike and do whatever ice fish or whatever was in the cards for that day. So I remember I hadn't seen him in a while because he was living in North Conway at that time. And um, mm-hmm. he came, we went out to get dinner, drinks one night, and he was like, yeah, I'm going to start respiratory therapy school next year. And I was like, you know, I'm graduating respiratory therapy school this year. <laughs> and he had no idea 
that I was finishing school for it anyway. But we ended up, you know, really being able to connect during school and stuff with how stressful it is and then getting our first jobs and all the crazy stuff we saw in the hospital. And, um, yeah, it was, it was an awesome thing to be able to connect on. But it was just very ironic that literally three months after graduating from respiratory therapy school, he gets diagnosed with lung cancer. It's like how, how, how ironic could it be that he's walking around the hospital, treating people, trying to make their lungs feel better, and at the same time, his lungs are failing him. It was like, it was always just such a weird dynamic um, the whole time he was sick and working at the same time. It was so bizarre. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, and you got to wonder, you know, if, you know, there's a million different scenarios that could have happened, like that it might have got caught sooner, like maybe he had, you know, hurt himself somewhere somewhere sooner and, and it had gotten caught or something, but, yeah. um, you know, who knows why these things happen. No, nobody does, but the, the thing about genetic forms of lung cancer is a lot of times it's not discovered until it's stage four. Um, and I think it's, yeah. it's so rapidly growing, so they don't even know what happens, but basically your body just decides to start mutating this gene. Nobody knows why, but when it, when it does happen, it's like wildfire. It just like goes so quickly that most of the time they don't even find out until it's already, already metastasized. Yeah, yeah. And then um, as far as the the hiking activities that you personally have planned. I know you've got the puppy, so you're limited because, you know, you've got to keep an eye on that little, um, the little dog, but like what mountains are you thinking you're going to be hiking as part of this challenge? Um, so luckily I have a lovely husband who will be spending a lot of time with my dog during this challenge this year. So last year, my goal was 15,000 feet of elevation, which I hiked, I think 18,000. Um, okay. so this year my goal is 20. Um, hopefully my, I started my list. I want to try to do a Zealand bombs traverse. Um, okay. I'm going to try, we're going to try to do Katahdin and Hamlin this year. I really want to get a Hamlin done when we go up there. So those are my two big ones that I've planned. Um, mm -hmm. and then I always throw a few in there that if I like maybe only have a few hours to get done. So I usually try to do, I'll do Pleasant Mountain a few times that month. Cause that's like 30 minutes from my house. And I've hiked that mountain probably like 15 or 20 times. And it's a quick 1500 feet of elevation. I like, um, what else do we try? Even if I, if it's just an evening, I can go run up to Douglas mountain, get a little hike in there. Um, but I have like Tecumseh, um, I still haven't do, done Liberty and Flume, so that's on my list for the fall, too. So hopefully we do have grand plans if, like, the weather works out perfectly sometime during that month to try to do a penny loop. But um, that only it's mid-September to mid-October, so you could really go either way as far as weather goes that time of year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then when you go to Katahdin, are you, um, so I've done like the, I stayed at Able Campground and I went up the, the Able and this, the slide and then went over to Hamlin. That P, it's, it's amazing. Like it depends on the weather. Like if it's cloudy or something, like it's, it's still awesome being up on that plateau. But like I remember like vividly like going to Hamlin, it was cloudy. And then as we came back over, um, 
it's just the clouds cleared, so we got to look down into the valley between Hamlin and the main peak of Katahdin, and it was like the, we were in the fall, and it was amazing. So yeah. I don't know. Are you are you staying at the Abel Campground, or are you coming in from another direction? Do you know yet? Uh, so we're going to stay at Roaring Brook Campground. Um, okay, yeah. so you come up the valley. Yeah, so I think the route that my my dream route right now is to come up um, – Chimney Pond, go up Dudley, because mm-hmm. they just reopened Dudley like two years ago, I think, and it hadn't been open for like 20 years, yeah. so it, I would love to take that trail up, nice edge across, um, take the ridge down over the Tablelands to Hamlin, and then down Hamlin Ridge Trail. All right, so you'll be able to do the big loop that way. Yeah. That, that's an amazing hike. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. It's amazing. If the weather's perfect. The last time I did Katahdin, the weather was absolutely, like, you just, I, I was early on in my hiking life, and I didn't realize how lucky I was. Like, probably 10-mile-per-hour winds at tops throughout the entire day, completely clear skies. It was a beautiful foliage fall, too. And back then, you know, like, I just had, like, my little hiking pack, packed my three liters of water. I'm like, oh, this is nice. And now, after having had traumatizing experiences in the life with weather i'm like oh my god i i totally didn't even realize like i was not prepared for what weather could have handed me up there on katahdin yeah exactly yeah well that's good and then so you're and you're close to western maine so my uh my family's in brownfield so pleasant mountain is like my home mountain between pleasant mountain um Burnt Meadow mm. and then Cutler Mountain, those three mountains are very close to you. So if you're looking for training grounds for the puppy, yeah. obviously you know about Pleasant, but Burnt Meadow and Cutler Mountain are are awesome. Cutler would be actually really good because there's nobody that knows about that that place. Yeah, yeah. We've done I've done all of those mountains. But um Penny's done uh his name is Penny after the Penny Jawasset yeah. River. Um yep. or the Penny Wilderness, whatever. Um yep. but he's done like the Ledges Trail and we've done the Fire Wardens Trail at Pleasant. So Burnt Meadow, the only thing that I was nervous about doing with that is that you do have that kind of like scramble uh, up at the top of Burnt Meadow there. That's like it's pretty, yeah, so- it's pretty intense little scramble there. Oh, people sleep on Burnt Meadow. Burnt Meadow's got like for for anybody that hasn't been on there, like there's a the final approach is like a probably what do you think like a hundred and twenty foot like sort of like rock kind of scramble that you've got to get up. It's like a cliff that you yeah. have to climb. Yeah, I mean, I would. I feel like I don't even know what the percent grade is on that part, but I would compare it to like any of the slides and the lights i feel like it's like very steep yeah you know when i you know when i would describe it as it's it's like the chimney on osceola yeah like coming from east osceola mm-hmm. to osceola it's very similar to that but the thing is with burnt meadow is that you can go off the backside. so if you went if you bear to the left i forget what that trail name is but if you bear to the left and you go around the back of Burnt Meadow, like you're going to Stone Mountain, mm-hmm. you can go up the back side of the mountain and then do that as an out and back and you can avoid the cliff if you want with the dog. So yeah. that's not, not bad. Yeah, that one that is true. I will say though, that back route on Burnt Meadow, I don't know why those woods are creepy in there. I don't know why. I've been in there I've hiked by myself. I love to hike by myself. And for some reason every time I hike Burnt Meadow and I do that back route around I get the heebie-jeebies down there. I don't know why. Yeah, it, 
it, and it gets a little creepier too because they've done the logging operation yeah. and like you can get like turned around a little bit um over there but yeah i get it i mean it can be haunted um i actually a lot of times i'll bypass i go up the, the slide so there's a slide on the um the uh, that takes you up to the other peak so i get out of the woods pretty quickly mm-hmm. and i'm on the slide so it doesn't freak me out as much but you're off trail and you know, it's it's a fun little mountain. Like I tell people all the time, how great Burnt Meadow is. But yeah, you're right; it's a little bit haunted. It's yeah. not as haunted as Paso Conway, but it's haunted. I still haven't done that one yet. Um, it's it's on my list, but I've never heard like glowing reviews about it. So I feel like it's one of the ones that I've just like kind of been hanging on to for when I like have a day that I just need to get it done. Yeah, I, I tell people like it's it's a you know especially if you're pursuing the four thousand footers and you've got like a weekend hike that you 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 have a free weekend to do a hike and the weather is looking kind of sketchy or something and you're kind of like I want to hike I want to pursue my list but um, I really don't want to be out in bad weather but you you know you want to get your like Paso Conway is a decent like rainy day type of hike like there's not a lot of views. It is pretty challenging, actually, like, if, especially if you come in from Oliverian Brook. But, um, you know, if you want the views, I guess people lump it in with Whiteface. I did them separately, so. Uh, but I got to get back up there this winter because I'm doing my winter 48, so I got to get past Conway and Whiteface. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll get back up there. But I always, it is kind of creepy there. It's like, it's, yeah, it's just a, a, like a wooded peak. Wasn't there like a dead, I remember there like a ton of posts about like a dead bear on that trail last year, I feel like, and people would just post pictures of this like decaying bear on the trail. <laughs> kind of turned me off yeah, from yeah. Paso Conway, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, well, go, go with somebody on that hike, I think, instead of going solo. Yeah. Um, but that's a fun one. Um but all right, so then for the for the for the fundraiser, then the signups open up on August fifteenth, and I think that we'll be uh, releasing this show probably like I think around August twelfth. So yeah. I'll include in the show notes a link for people to sign up, and then um, the actual event goes from what September fifteenth to October fifteenth. To October sixteenth because October fifteenth is a Saturday, so we wanted to end it on Sunday so that people could have the whole weekend to hike. Um, but yes, it ends on the sixteenth. Uh, we wanted to do peak fall time hiking, so we decided on that for this year. But yep, August fifteenth is a sign up um, start date, so you can start fundraising on the fifteenth. Um, so you actually have two months to fundraise throughout the entire challenge. Um, so that's that's kind of nice. It gives you a lot of time. Great, great. And then, do you have like a specific like um, goal for the funds this year? Or do you have like a um, like something that you've established that you're going to be supporting at this point? Or are you still working through like what the what the foundation will support in the future with the with the funds that are raised? Uh, no. So we established early on um, in the foundation, initially we had wanted it to be that we would donate um, trips to patients so that they kind of like an adult make-a-wish type deal so that just something to get their mind off of cancer. Because really when Taylor was sick, that was the big thing he wanted to do was just go and relax and spend time with family and go see beautiful sights. And, and so initially that was our goal and then COVID hit. <laughs> so COVID kind of really 
changed a lot of things for everybody. I mean, uh, but especially for us, we had to kind of revamp our entire um, goal, I guess, because in that time, it wasn't safe for anybody to be traveling, let alone somebody with, yeah. with cancer. Um, so we started working with Dana Farber and New England Cancer Specialists and um, Northern Light Medical, all of the um, basically big cancer treatment centers in uh, Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. And they all basically told us, like, people really just need help with the basics. They really need help with gas, groceries, pharmacy gift cards. So we totally switched our um, our kind of what we were giving to now we do $1,000 increments for each patient of any sort of gift cards that they want. Gas, mostly people do gas and grocery gift cards just because it's really what they need right now. And especially with... Um, mm-hmm. Genetic cancers, a lot of times they have to be treated at Dana-Farber, which for some people, like Taylor was driving from Maine to Dana-Farber all the time. So with gas, how expensive it is, uh, people really need this stuff. So um, we've been doing that now for um, a little over a year and a half. We had about, uh, we had eight patients last year that we we supported through last year. And right now we are almost close to that number. Um, so we should be further on that number this year. And then we also, um, we, a big part of our foundation is supporting research. So we donated, we were able to donate $10,000 to a research fund at um, Sloan Kettering that they're doing a specific research study about the KRAS gene. Um, so those are kind of our two avenues that we take on for, so if we, most of the time we, our goal is to raise Twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars. That way, that will basically pay for fifteen patients and a research donation for that year. Yeah, got it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll do our best to try to get uh, get things going. And we're gonna uh, like if anybody's listening, especially you hiking buddy crew. I know you just got off another fundraiser for Alzheimer's, but it's time to step up for the fall. So hopefully. We can get our audience uh, behind this, yeah. and, and people will will step up and, and get involved in this because I think everybody, you know, we've had like, you know, Rebecca Sperry on, and she's doing her own fundraiser around, um, you know, supporting um, cancer as well. So we definitely want to get behind whatever groups we can to help out. So great. Well, again, thank you so much, Brittany, for for joining us, and we'll do our best to get the word out on on the foundation and um you know definitely we'll we'll stay in touch and if you want to come back on after the uh, after the fundraiser to give us an update that'd be great i would absolutely love to i appreciate you guys having me on All right. Um, so thank you, Brittany, for joining us. Um, and we will definitely be including some details on how to help out with the foundation in our show notes. And uh, Stomp, I, it was a good, good story. I mean, it's, it's always sad to think about a young person in the prime of their life that's passed away. But it's great to know that, you know, Taylor's friends are continuing on to, uh, uh, you know, to, to, keep his legacy and his memory um, top of mind. And we'll definitely help out with doing some hikes and some donations for him. Absolutely. And I'm glad that Slasher can actually provide a platform for various charities and this and that. And if you think you want um, to share your story or your mission uh, for your charity, just reach out and uh, maybe we can help you out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our only criteria is like you know that you know we want something that's like hiking related, but otherwise, like just just come on, we'll we'll definitely plug anything we can. Yeah.
we're going to move on to recent search and rescue news. So we got a bunch of stuff here, uh, starting <laughs> with national stories. So the first story we have here is a very odd search going on in Corbett, Oregon. So this this hiker was reportedly stranded well at the Lewis and Clark State Recreation Area. Um, and they were doing a search for this guy on, I think, Thursday, July 28th. So it was a 44-year-old gentleman by the name of Daniel Graham who was reportedly left uh, of the location where he was spotted before deputies could reach him. The deputies had asked him to stay in place. Um, and now at this point, they've not been able to locate this guy. So we're like two weeks after this, and they still haven't been able to find him. So mm-hmm. the search was suspended on Thursday evening. It picked up on Friday, the 29th. And, um, you know, basically they said that he had um, been in this area of thick vegetation that he had called saying that he was running out of food and water but is okay um they weren't able to find him on thursday night they went in again on friday and they said that he reportedly left the location where he was spotted um even though they told him to stay in place and he's never been seen again <laughs> it's so odd right it's very weird like they spotted him they they, they had a location they had sort of a uh, a definite hit on where he is and they get there and he's gone (laughs) and like i was digging around to see if there was any follow-up like articles or anything like that there's nothing nothing so he's in the wind isn't that weird it's a strange story yeah it's very odd i don't know maybe he yeah he might have well hopefully he's okay he might have drank a bad ice cube (laughs) did a little vision quest it's possible yeah Um, All right, so this next one here is from Alaska. So uh, two hikers were rescued unharmed from Ketchikan Trail after losing their way. And I've I've seen this, like, trail mentioned in the past, so I think it must be, like, a Mm -hmm. pretty popular area. So two people were rescued on Wednesday evening after losing the trail during a backcountry hike near um, Ketchikan, and they were unharmed. So they were doing something called the Silvis to Deer Mountain Traverse with a scheduled overnight over uh, Mahoney Mountain. And the um, head of the volunteer rescue squad had said that uh, the hikers ended up on a spur trail by mistake and got lost in the snow as they returned to the main trail. The hikers called for help when they found themselves stuck in steep terrain. And they said they had kind of sketchy cell phone connectivity with them, so they had to get to just the right position to be able to get a signal. Um, I guess they were able to locate the hikers and lead them out to safety, but it was a 14-mile trek that's considered challenging even for those with plenty of outdoor experience. And um, the the search and rescue guy said that uh, it's probably the most underestimated hike that we have locally. Um, that the whole part of the trail from Blue Lake out until you drop into Silvis is just dangerous and not well marked, very easy to get off trail. So all's well that ends well for these folks. Yeah, you know what's really neat about this? The last paragraph, they talk about um, the Ketchikan Volunteer Rescue Squad loans out spot beacons for free at the public library. How cool is that? So that's something that uh, I know that uh, Reckless and Bethlehem have a, uh, a gear library. So that might be something that they can look into as well. Great idea. Yeah, yeah, that's super pretty, cool. Pretty interesting. I never, uh, never heard of that before. 
Yeah, it's like a modern take on the old school library. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. Okay, so the next story here, Stomp, is in the Adirondacks. 17-year-old from Delaware was rescued by rangers. Um, this kid was trying to climb 22 high peaks in a week. He apparently um, suffered a seizure as he was attempting to do this climb. So I don't know anything about the Adirondacks. Um, I don't either. He must have been doing a route that like hits about half of them. But I guess rescue teams got a call around 7.15 um, in the region of Indian Lake. People had reported that the youth was near the Flowed Lands Lake. And um, they were able to get a caretaker out there. Um, I guess he was staying in a lean-to, and they brought the person to another area. Not easily accessible, so state police helicopter was able to land close to the hiker, and they were helping him into the helicopter, which eventually brought uh, brought him to a hospital. So, okay. interesting. I, I didn't say whether he was with anybody, but... Yeah, the, I guess apparently he was he was trying to do something crazy in a week. Yeah, well, I mean, the story goes on to say that quote fit and well trained adventurers have submitted all of the peaks or summited, sorry, all of the peaks in well under a week. So I guess it's certainly possible. But this uh, individual ran into some medical issues. Yeah, I mean, I would think it's it's probably similar to like our Deratessima, which a 17-year-old kid, especially if he was on his own, like I would be, you have to be a special kind of kid to be able to survive uh, or be able to manage something like that. True, true. I guess the record here, or at least a notable one, is all 46 summits in three days, 16 hours, and 16 minutes by a female runner from Virginia, Alyssa Gadeski. Six, that's amazing. That's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. What are you doing, Stomp? I'm Stomp's trying. fiddling with his camera here. Am I blurry? Yeah, a little blurry. I'm blurry. Yeah, yeah. It, it's been blurry the whole time, so I'm trying to figure out why it's blurry. Hey, who cares? But you're so dark anyway, it's like hard for me to tell. <laughs> You got your Randall Flag thing going on here, but <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. so the next uh, next story here is um, it takes us back to Oregon. So, Stomp, let me ask you a question before I do this story. When you were a kid, did you go through like a pyro stage, like where you were into like lighting fires and stuff? Because I definitely did. Maybe not fires, but like fireworks. Maybe you know, but yeah. not like intentionally destroying a, a forest. No. You did though. Okay, let's hear. I went to a pyro stage. Well, not really like a pyro stage, but like we would like curiosity. You know, go. Yeah, we were always in the woods. Like when I grew, I mean, I grew up in North Reading, which you would think is like in in Mass. You would think of as like you know, it's not a rural area. But when I was growing up, there was a ton of woods, so we'd go out and like make a bonfire or whatever. So sure. Um, but we would always have this one, you know, there'd always be like one kid that always took it a little too far. And you were kind of like, that kid's going to be like trouble when he gets older with fire. So this story kind of reminded me of that. So in Oregon, uh, suspected forest arsonist detained and, and tied to a tree by local residents before getting arrested. So I guess this guy Bravo. was, um, yeah, I guess there was like, um, 
a guy that he was suspected of purposely setting forest fires in a remote section of the woods. He was tracked down and confronted by three locals who tied him to a tree until authorities could arrest him. So they must have had it in mind. They were like, somebody bring a rope so we can we can tie this kid to the tree. <laughs> but um, the excellent. incident occurred, I guess, in the afternoon. Uh, police received a call reporting active fires near um, this like lodge and ranch area located deep in southwest Oregon in an area that's only accessible by river or by um, Bureau of Land Management Road. So Oregon, like I've been to like Portland and like the, the coastal areas of of Oregon, but I feel like once you get outside of like that Portland area, it's very much like very much like northern New Hampshire, like people aren't gonna locals aren't gonna mess around. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, yeah. So Rightly I guess so. this guy, you know, authorities were notified that there was some fires going on, and that an adult male had been spotted walking along the gravel road leading to this area. Um, so some of the locals had decided that they were going to go investigate and they located the suspect walking on the roadway near the fires and detained him until law enforcement arrived on the scene i guess the suspect became very combative with the three residents and had to be tied to a tree to subdue him um <laughs> i wish i could have been a fly on the wall like, i'd love to see a picture of this yeah i'd love <laughs> to see a picture of this uh so the suspect was identified as a 30 year old guy from Venita, oregon he was eventually untied from the tree and taken to the hospital to be treated for injuries that he suffered from a fall. He took some time during the incident. Um, and then they said, I guess the investigation is ongoing and that all information gathered will be provided to the district attorney for prosecution. So yeah. they said the guy's presumed innocent until proven guilty, but it's like... You know, he's the only one around. There's a forest fire that was started on purpose, so it seems a little sketchy to me. Sure does. I remember as a kid in Peabody, Mass. I grew up like I spent a lot of time at my uh, my first cousin's house in Peabody, Allen Road. There was like this swath of forest behind their home, and um, we came across a fire. But as opposed to lighting it, we all the kids. It was like this, like Stranger Things, or like. Um, um, like a Spielberg movie, all these kids from the neighborhood came onto this fire and like put it out before the fire uh, crews even showed up. It was super cool. <laughs> like we were the heroes. Like woo. <laughs> yeah, I had a similar thing. Like me and my friend were like we were like flicking matches in the woods by like these high tension wires, and you know. Oh it was such, it was, I was great? such an asshole kid, like young, like 11, maybe 10, 11, whatever, flicking <laughs> matches. Hopefully my mom's not listening to the show. And like, you know, you start like a fire and then you like stomp it out and you're like, it's fine. But like we're in like the high tension wires and it's like a big open area and it's super windy day. And like the, immediately the fire gets completely out of control. We're like, we can't put the fire out. So we just ran like told an adult, we were like, oh, we saw some <laughs> dirt bike riders that were there and a fire started and we don't know what happened. And like, you know, I don't know. I don't even remember. I think the fire department came and like put it out before I got bad or anything. But we were such like, <laughs> I think, the, I think the statute of limitations is out, you know. So, Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I will but anyway, anybody. it was a very short period in my life. It's a dark, dark time. I got over it. <laughs> the pyro. Isn't there a pyro character in the stand with Randall Flagg? There's there like yeah, a sidekick yeah, that's a pyro. Yes. Uh, there he you does, go. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. like you and me. So anyway. That's that's well, what this is shaping yeah. up to. 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but um, don't don't play with matches. <laughs> right. So, Something about growing up in the seventies and eighties. I don't know what it is, but anyway. Um, so the next one here is Ohio hiker found dead near a fifty foot waterfall. Hmm. So. Um, couple of rules here that you always want to think of when you're hiking near a waterfall is don't go near the edge. Don't take a selfie. So um, sp- spokesperson from the Ohio, De- Ohio Department of Natural Resources tells us that a camper was was able to find a person at the bottom of a cliff at 6 p.m. It's believed the hiker had left the trail near a waterfall. So that's what you don't want to do is like leave the trail near a waterfall. Mm-hmm. Um, the identity of the hiker was not released and the death remains under investigation. Apparently this is um, a section called Cantwell Cliffs, which are located in a remote area of the northern section of Hawking Hill State Park, which is southeast of Columbus. So yeah. Don't know if the person was taking a selfie or what they were doing, but never a good idea to go off trail near a waterfall. Correct. Yep. Uh, next story takes us to Italy in the Dolomites. So British hiker 56 falls to her death in the in the Dolomites. Uh, British woman has fallen to her death. Um, 56-year-old has not been named by the police who re- reportedly was trekking with her husband when she slipped and plunged 100 feet I'm always sketched out by these women that fall when they're hiking with their husband, but hopefully it was just an accident. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You've been listening to, like, crime junkies, haven't you? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) It's always the husband. Um, I guess a week before that, a 54-year-old hiker had fallen to his death nearby, so maybe it's just an area where people fall. Yeah. And then earlier this month, an avalanche on the Dolomites killed nearly a dozen people when a huge chunk of ice detached from a melting glacier stomp. You had, I think you had posted the video on that one. Okay. So, um, but this is the second death confirming of Britain in Italy in the last week. Um, So do not go to the Dolomites. Is that what you're telling me? I mean, I definitely want to go to the Dolomites. It's beautiful there, (laughs) but um, I'm not going to, maybe I won't hike with Mrs. Mike. (laughs) <laughs> it's near like a, a cliff a risky adventure yeah, oh man exactly so anyway that's unfortunate that uh that they fell but yeah you gotta be careful yeah and then uh last but not least here fatal stabbing in a wisconsin river this is a crazy it's, story here it's and super weird did we cover this already i don't think so but i i wanted to cover it because a lot of people in the hampshire float um, they tube, they kayak, and this and that. And it sounds like that type of c- scenario where it's just, you know, a bunch of folks partying down the river, that type of thing. So let's check it out. Yeah, yeah. So this is, there's two stories here that we're going to cover. One is, I think, the initial sort of indictment. So this Minnesota man, 50-something-year-old man, um, yeah, this guy's 50. So, stop. I'm 50, and this guy's 52. This guy looks like he's about 100 years older than me. <laughs> I was going to say. You too. Like, he definitely looks like, he looks like. I'm not a healthy 50-year-old. Yeah, he looks like my dad. Like, not that my dad's not. Like, he's just older looking. <laughs> he does look old. Sunken eyes. Yeah, but anyway, so um, prosecutors have charged a Minnesota man with first-degree intentional homicide. So this guy is Nikolai Mew, 52, of Prior Lake, Minnesota. Um, Hmm. He fatally stabbed a teenage boy and wounded four other people while tubing down a western 
Wisconsin River over the weekend. Wow. So so potentially facing a life sentence if convicted, and he appeared via a video link. So I guess he's got a million-dollar bond on him. And the 17-year-old kid that he killed was from Stillwater, Minnesota, died of stab wounds, suffered along the Apple River. And then there was four other people, two men, 20 and 22. And um, I guess they were from Luck, Wisconsin. And then a 22-year-old man from Elk River. And then a 24-year-old woman from Burnsville. They were all taken to Regions Hospital in St. Paul's with serious to critical injuries, the sheriff's office has reported. So Mm -hmm. uh, some of them have been released. But I guess the stabbing happened right before 4 p.m., on Saturday, and according to the complaint, um, the incident started with a confrontation between the guy, the 52-year-old guy who was tubing down the river with his wife and a bunch of other people, and at least one other group of people tubing on the river. Yeah, this guy Mew, who's the the one that stabbed, he said that he was using a snorkel and goggles to look for a lost cell phone with a knife. And video and witness accounts say that uh, some bystanders accused him of approaching children in the water. So, hmm. I don't know. It seems like a, some kind of a conflict. And it's this guy Mew apparently was bothering some of the juveniles, according to them. And they confronted him and told him to get out of there. So, I don't know. It could be that it seems like maybe he lost his phone. He's swimming around trying to find it. And then he's creeping people out intentionally or not intentionally. But again, he's looking for his cell phone in a river with a knife. Like, who does that? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a little so weird. So, I think in the updated article, he, so first of all, he's saying they attacked him. I was in self defense mode. And then he says that he took one of the weapons away from one of the men in the crowd, oh. um, but didn't know. I, yeah, so he's saying that he didn't even have the weapon, that he took it from somebody else and then used it. Interesting. Well, let's play. So, let's play attorneys. Let's play. <laughs> let's play reasonable well, doubt. <laughs> the thing about, I mean, so I think the the issues with the Saco River, I think really like I think they reached an apex in like the early two thousands. I think maybe from two thousand one to two thousand five. I think that's when law enforcement really started cracking down on all the bullshit that was going on there. Yeah. But I could definitely see scenarios where two groups get a little bit too close on the river and a confrontation happens and then Sure. You know, I don't know why anyone would have a knife on a river. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. anybody. Yeah, but it is kind of crazy. Like I just like I remember floating the Pemi with you and like it's such a chill day like I couldn't imagine anybody being like so angry or looking to get into a fight that they would they would do that. But I guess you never know. It just takes one hothead. Yeah, exactly. Well, crazy story. So that's what's happening nationally. How about locally? Anything good? Yeah, locally we have uh, just an announcement here that the Maine versus New Hampshire um, Northwood showdown is happening. Did it already happen? It already happened, it happened? yeah. Oh, yeah, it happened. And... Uh, Unfortunately, New Hampshire fishing game lost. Apparently, I don't know the exact score, but somebody told me it was fishing game leading up until the very end, and then Maine came back for a uh, revival at the very end. So it's a super cool event. They do this for charity every year. And, um, oh, well, maybe next year. 
maybe next year fishing game will pull it off. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, sounds like a competitive game, which is nice. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yep. Um, all right. So uh, moving on to actual search and rescue news here. So we have, I feel like this is the week where things have sort of gotten back to normal. Like we've got the regular kind of, um, what is it called? Meat and potatoes type of search and rescues. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, this first one is from an injured hiker rescued on Franconia Ridge in Franconia. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting headline. So 340 on Monday, August 1st, uh, Fishing Game received a call about an injured hiker on Franconia Ridge about a half a mile from the summit of Lafayette. So the hiker was identified as a 34-year-old gentleman from Norwell, Mass., he had fallen and suffered a serious injury, leaving him unable to walk. Two members of his party hiked to Greenleaf Hut to request assistance from AMC. Due to the nature of the injuries and location of approximately 4.5 miles from the nearest trailhead, a call was made to New Hampshire Army National Guard in Concord. The uh, National Guard deployed a helicopter and crew and responded to Franconia Ridge. Uh, Two AMC members hiked to the location from the Greenleaf Hut to assist the guard in locating the the victim from the air. At approximately 6.15, the helicopter was able to hoist the gentleman and one hiking companion off the ridge and flew them to Littleton Regional Hospital. So I I usually don't see that where a friend is able to jump in the helicopter with them, but... Mm. They have quite a story to tell. So uh, it says that they were well prepared for the hike and planned to be out for multiple days. So um, they had previously hiked in the White Mountains on numerous occasions. So it seems like Fishing Game will like look at your resume to determine if, you know, if you're an experienced hiker, they give you the benefit of the doubt and a little shout out in the media press. So I'm definitely going to be breaking my resume out if I ever need a rescue. (laughs) (laughs) Please say that I was well prepared. <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, the only comment on that is that day was so hot. So if rescuers had to go out for that, this this fellow was way up there. That I mean, that would have been a long, long, long mission. But yeah, uh, yeah, thank exactly. you so much for the uh, Air National Guard. Yeah. Yeah, and my only other comment on this one is that, again, much like, you know, we talk about the cog and how people don't like the cog, and I get it, you know, like it's it's not the greatest thing to have that on the, the mountain, but people sort of talk about the AMC. I think we were even talking about it a little bit um, a couple of weeks ago about exp- it's expensive to stay in the huts, but yeah. those huts being in there are an advantage in these situations because you can deploy the AMC crew members pretty quickly to get to somebody that's up on the ridge like that. So, yeah. you know, as much as we talk about the AMC and they're not perfect, like shout out to them for being there for, you know, for people when they need a rescue. Correct. Okay. So the next one here is fishing game or assisting a triple homicide. So mm. we had the homicide in um, Concord uh, a couple of months ago, the husband and wife that has not been solved yet. This is a um, homicide that happened where a mother and two children were killed. So I think the mother was 25, and then um, two sons, Benjamin and Mason Sweeney, ages four and one, which is just unimaginable. Right. Um, So homicide investigation. Um, So they're doing a search in the uh, area. I think the... Was it Brentwood was the location? 
or Northfield, Northfield, I'm sorry. Right. Um, so the search activity poses no danger to the public and will consist of a search for physical evidence. Um, you know, you always think about like, oh, where, where's the husband in this? What I, the li- what little that I read about this is that it sounds like they, they may have cleared the husband from this situation. So I don't know. Yeah. What happened? It's awful. We'll come on that one. Yeah. We'll keep an eye on it. And, and when there's an update, we'll let you know. All right, so we got four more to go here, Stomp. So Old Bridal. So we're back to Franconia here. So Franconia is getting a little activity. Yeah. So um, Saturday, August 6th, around 10.30 p.m., fishing game was notified of a hiker that suffered a lower leg injury while descending Old Bridal off Mont Lafayette. Um, So this um, 29-year-old person from Lawrence and three hiking partners had hiked the Franconia Ridge Loop started their ascent around 9 a.m. that's that morning so long day for them oh yeah took them longer than expected the headlamp that they brought stopped working as they were trying to make their way down by using flashlights from two cell phones this person she she slipped and injured her lower leg one of the cell phone batteries was getting low and the group was unsure if they'd be able to continue without lights so they called 911 and um, it was determined that the person could could bear weight on her leg in order to walk slowly out. A couple of conservation officers responded to assist the group, and they provided them with food and lights and got to them around 1 a.m. and escorted the party back to the trailhead, got there around 2 a.m. So they started at 9 in the morning and ended up getting to their car at 2 a.m. the next morning. Yeah. So the point here is, is there a difference with the gear that you purchase where you get the gear the brands that you get is there a difference should you go with the more expensive headlamp versus a cheaper one from say wherever yeah i don't know i have i actually have like a really cheap walmart headlamp that's been rock solid interesting um and then i also have a i got a black diamond headlamp with like the the the, the battery pack to it. Sure. And the battery pack within like the first month I had that thing when I was twisting it on, yeah. I twisted the wire out. So now the, the colored wires are exposed. Okay. So I'm always sketched out. So I bring two, I bring two headlamps with me. Well, that's, your, I, that's the thing. That's your motto. Yeah. Two headlamps. And then, um, you know, even if they're crappy, one of them hopefully will work. Okay. Good stuff. Yep. So they're, uh, they're a little long day. And then uh, Amanusik Rescue, injured hiker carried down Amanusik Ravine Trail. So Saturday, August 7th at approximately 1030, fishing game, we're notified of a hiker with a leg injury on Amanusik Ravine Trail. After a conversation with the injured party and her hiking partner, it was decided she tried to make her way down the trail under her own power with the assistance of those in her group. Two hours of slow progress and fear of further injury, the decision was made to launch a rescue effort to carry her down. So they were able to activate uh, PEMI Search and Rescue, uh, Anderskogen Search and Rescue, Lakes Region. So I guess everybody from PEMISAR, AVSAR, ELSAR responded to the call, and they hiked in about two miles with a litter. 49-year-old woman from Newton, Mass., had been descending the trail with a large group when she slipped and suffered an injury. So, um, yeah. I guess a White Mountain National Forest employee came upon her and her hiking party and called it into the authorities, and he was able to stay with her the entire time and assisted in the carry down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then AMC again sent down a hut crew member from Lake of the Clouds to assist with right. this. So uh, I guess it all started at ten thirty in the morning, and they got 
her to the parking lot at 6 p.m. They were on the last day of a multi-day trek and had been hiking since Thursday. So this went down on Sunday. <laughs> Sunday Sunday was a busy day because at 3.15 p.m. we had another up on Franconia Ridge. And that is the next story. This is uh, Garfield Ridge, you mean? Yep. Garfield, yeah, Franconia. Okay. I, I interchanged them. Like, based upon the location of this incident, that's like, to me, that's Franconia Ridge, but they call that oh, Garfield got Ridge. Got it, got it. So this is, again, yeah, 315. So um, a hiker along the Garfield Ridge Trail in Franconia, so 41-year-old uh, from Australia, mm. uh, was hiking the um, Garfield Ridge section of the Appalachian Trail, hoping to make it to Garfield Shelter. Unfortunately, there were... Um, Hmm. You're going to stop me if you've heard this before, but there was wet rocks along the route uh, in that area. So it caused the hiker to slip, fall, and injure her lower leg. Hiking partner was able to call 911 because the hiker was unable to bear weight and walk further. So um, conservation officers and a mix from Lakes Region as well as Pemigewasset Valley Search and Rescue responded to carry this hiker down the Skookumchuck Trail. So... Um, Skookumchuck is a steady 7.9 miles out in back trail leading up to Garfield Ridge. Conditions of the carryout were brutal due to heat and humidity throughout the day and into the evening. Uh, and then some of these team members had already assisted in the carryout um, on Amanusik earlier in the day. Yeah. So um, they reached her, packed her in a litter, and started carrying her down at around 7.50. And then they got to the trailhead around 11.30. So, ouch. Very interesting day. I mean, that day was loaded with passing thunderstorms, uh, just really wild weather, unpredictable. So, obviously, that impacted the uh, the rocks and the, uh, the wetness and whatnot. But hats off to all the teams. That is not easy. Nope, not at all. Yeah. And then uh, last but not least, and I got a little follow-up on this one stomp that I want to get into it with you in a minute, but um, hiker assisted off the last mile of Crawford Path. So this was on Tuesday at 12 a.m. Fishing game was notified of a hiker reportedly suffering from an unknown medical condition on Crawford Path, approximately one mile from the trailhead. So not bad. Yep. The call was made by a fellow hiker who ran down to 302 in order to get cell phone coverage due to the medical nature of the call. Twin Mountain Fire and EMS was toned out. EMS personnel and a conservation officer responded to the trailhead and hiked in the one mile to the hiker. After an assessment by a paramedic on the scene, it was determined that the hiker, 53-year-old gentleman from Montville, New Jersey, was not having a medical emergency. Mm -hmm. He was likely suffering from dehydration and exhaustion. So a hiker was provided with Gatorade and was able to continue hiking under his own power. Took about an hour and a half of slowly working his way down the trail before he made it to 302 around 3 a.m. Wow. Um, Hmm. And then he was given a medical assessment once he made it down to the ambulance and deemed that he suffered no serious medical condition. I guess this guy had been hiking with two other hiking companions who were attempting to complete a north to south presidential traverse. Um. All the hikers were prepared and carried all the necessary equipment to undertake such a hike. Uh, this guy had hiked several of the peaks in the presidential range before, but this was his first time doing a full Trezzy, Prezi Traverse. No other info was available at this time. You need to dissect the data and tell me if there's an uptick in medical, medical this year. 
because I'm seeing yeah, it in abundance. Yeah, I mean this this was it had to have been heat related or something, but yeah, I, I feel like I'll have to take a look at it and let you know. I'm really um, curious about it. Yeah, but this 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 one set off like I had posted this on the Facebook page, and this one set off like a big debate where a bunch of people just assumed that the two hikers that he was with left him. Yeah, I don't think you can get that from this this media report. Like it doesn't say that. It says that he was hiking with you know two people. I assumed that they were with him, and mm-hmm. that one of the guys had been the one that ran down to get you know get the cell connection to call out but i don't know i don't don't know what the case is but there was a lot of people that were like just sort of jumping on the assumption that he had been abandoned by his fellow hikers and i just don't read that into this this news report so i don't really know what happened there but it was interesting Mm -hmm. but the other thing stop i wanted to ask you is a presidential traverse i feel like i should know this but can't you don't you finish a presidential traverse or can you finish a presidential traverse on the Crawford path, right? Sure. Like you don't do, you don't have to do Jackson to do a full Prezi traverse. Well, I think you might have to hit Jackson. I mean, if you're hitting all the summits for a, a traditional traverse, I think you have I to guess. hit all peaks from Madison all the way down. But I thought a presidential traverse, because the Jackson peak is not a president <laughs> it's named after Nath- i think the guy's name is nathaniel jackson i don't that's a good question i'm not quite I feel, sure yeah somebody's got to tell us like what's the official route i feel like it's pierce's where you end and you go down the crawford path hmm. yeah would make because that's the other thing about this like the argument on the fit i was like don't you finish on the crawford path like how would you assume that they left him hmm I don't know. Let's look yeah. it up quick. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I mean, we'll do some research. We'll, I'll ask Al. If you're listening, Al, you seem to know a lot, so let me know. <laughs> Follow up with me. Huh. Um, but you, this guy, Jackson, that, that, that the peak is named after, I think his name's Nathaniel. It may not be Nathaniel, but he's an interesting guy. Like, apparently, he was like this inventor and he was like known as like being one of these like geniuses and he but he was one of these guys that like very much like myself he would start a lot of things but not actually finish them or he would like get bored with them and like pass them off to other people Mm -hmm. so he was he was the guy that had i guess written all of the technical specs and the theory around um telegraph and like um and all the like the, basically the way to send messaging over a wire but he got bored with it he was kind of like yeah i'll do the proof of concept but then he passed it off to his friend who um he was like hey you should check this out and maybe run with it that guy's name was morse okay he went on to invent morse code but it was really the guy jackson that the jackson webster is named after that was the one that did all the all the proof of concept and the scientific research to start with. And then the Morse guy took it and was like, I'm going to create Morse code. <laughs> okay. So here's, here's a question for you back to the Prezi thing. Mount yeah. Clay. President? I don't think so. Was, wasn't, wasn't Clay a, like I, a secretary of state? I think so, yeah. So that's part of the traverse as well, so that would imply that you'd have to finish on Jackson. I don't know. I'm just curious. I'm really curious about that now. Like, what is the true route? I think it's 
you know, it, it's a traverse. I think it's from point A to point B. It's every peak from start to finish. So I don't think it really matters what uh, their their political <laughs> designation was. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to look. I know that, yeah. like, because it's one of the, um, like, the fastest known time website has the, um, it has, like, the 10, like, premier FKTs, and Presidential Traverse is one of them. So yeah. it has to be, like, a standard route, I'm assuming. So I'll have to look that up. I just didn't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I could be way off, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Very Yeah, good. and Hen- Henry Clay was an American attorney who was a senator in House of Representatives, and he was, um, he had run for president, I think, like three or four times, or a Republican in the Whig Party. Hmm. Very random that, like, he would be named after this. Like, he's not even a president, but, like, somebody named it in his honor. If that's accurate. Yeah, it could be a different clay, but I would assume that's that's who they're talking about. Yeah. Anyway, we're, <laughs> we're like going way off tangents. Yeah, this is going to be a long one here. But all right, so Stomp, the only other thing I'll close with is I am going to be doing a Pemi Loop this weekend. So if you're wow. out on the Pemi Loop on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, be on the lookout for a uh, a crew. It's going to be me and two other guys I'm going to be going out with. Okay. All right. So. I'm going to be at Guillaume on Saturday night, which I, I'm, a, I'm fully expecting is going to be a crowded shit show. Yeah, I bet. So let's talk about a couple things about this. Are you going to leave your itinerary on your dashboard or tell your friends by text? I'll text you. I text my wife. <laughs> so she's got it. Okay. All right. So, good. And secondly, yeah. I have an announcement, sort of an announcement. Um, if anybody in the audience is interested in search and rescue, I think now might be the time to sign up and join in. Um, there's more of a need on the eastern and northern parts of the state. So if you want to volunteer and help out, uh, now might be your time to sign up. So keep that in mind. There are teams that you can sign up for. It's, you know, AVSAR. You can certainly try out for PEMI. You can try out for Lakes. Yeah, a couple of years, Stomp, when I move up north, I can, I can get on the team. I think you'd be great for AVSAR. Or lakes, Med- even. Yeah. Med- imagine if I got rejected. I don't think so. I don't yeah, know. Absolutely. Yeah, there's some interesting things going on with the teams right now. So, um, oh, man, you'd be a great asset for the eastern side of uh, the Prezies. Yeah, yeah, I don't know where we'll... I, I mean, my guess is that eventually we will move up to either Maine or New Hampshire at some point in the next couple of years and try to do that thing between... The northern states and then go down to florida or something but we'll, we'll see i mean that whole thing gets accelerated with remote work now like before yeah. covid happened like that was never even an option we were like oh i'll work until i get re- you know i retire and then we can move but now you're not tied to a geography as much so hmm. you know once my youngest daughter is out of high school there's no ties to massachusetts true true i'm actually looking so, into yeah. um you know part-time stuff for pt teletherapy like if you can imagine that it's sort of weird at first i was really resistant to it you know pt being such a hands-on experience but there's a huge need nationwide for therapists so teletherapy is starting to boom yeah i mean everything can be done over zoom basically so um i know it's not ideal for physical therapy but right right so 
All right, Stomp. Well, we learned about... Um, <laughs> Great show. A long one. Yeah, we learned all about uh, Taylor James, Steve's foundation, so I'll definitely include that in the show notes, and then I will catch you on the other side of a Pemi loop. All right. Good luck. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Only one hill! Here's Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.